We're going to be very interactive. I have lots of, of audience response questions for you, and I'm going to try to sprinkle in my advice on how to do test questions, too, just to help you with, you know, I know you all have an incredible amount of knowledge, and I know this test is hard in that it's not just how much you know, it's, it's how you recognize what they're trying to ask you. So I'll try to give you my pearls as we go through this, these eight hours of general medicine that you can use in all of your test taking. Okay, we're going to start by one of my, with one of my very favorite topics, which is drug interactions and important side effects. And we're going to go through a lot of different things, and I think a lot of things that are, are very relevant for the boards. A 55-year-old woman with a history of hypothyroidism presents with increasing fatigue and bradycardia. Her TSH has risen from 4 a year ago to 45. Her meds are simvastatin, verapamil, warfarin, citalopram, calcium, and a multivitamin. So my question for you is, an interaction with which of these is the most likely reason that her TSH has gone from a normal range up to 45? Is it with simvastatin, verapamil, warfarin, citalopram, or calcium? Okay, you did good on this one. 62% of you recognize calcium. So calcium and iron are the two I want you to really, really remember in regards to messing up thyroid hormone absorption. And it's not uncommon for people to just put themselves on calcium without saying anything. And so it should be one of those things you think about when you get a surprising bump in the TSH in somebody who's been on long-term management with thyroid hormone that previously has been successful. So iron and calcium are the most important. Magnesium that can be in, in, in uh, and aluminum that can be in antacids can also have an effect. And then binders such as cholestyramine and sucrophate, which are pure, pure binders. If people take them right at the same time they take thyroid hormone, they can get into a problem. Part of the way we avoid this problem with our patients is we take, tell them to take their thyroid hormone away from everything else. Take it away from food, take it away from all medications just so they can avoid this. Another one that pe people are often not aware of are proton pump inhibitors can decrease thyroid absorption as well. So if somebody gets started on a proton pump inhibitor, it's another one. Estrogen. Taking estrogen can change thyroid binding globulin and you end up needing to give more thyroid while a woman is taking estrogen. And the converse is important too. When a woman goes off estrogen, you may have them over-replaced because of the effect of thyroid-binding globulin. So what are some things you should think about when you see a rising TSH? I know you just had a great eight hours of uh, endocrinology from Dr. Schlechty, but um, wanted to just put this in there. This comes up in test questions and in real life, too. We, we check and see if people are compliant. That's always a good first thing to do. Are they on iron? Are they on calcium? Are they on a binder? Are they taking a proton pump inhibitor or H2 blocker, messing up acid, which could affect absorption? Could they have developed achlorhydria? And a very important pearl, could they have sprue? Celiac disease decreases the ability to absorb thyroid hormone. So it's not an uncommon thing because thyroiditis, autoimmune disease, celiac autoimmune disease, so they often can go together. 
So keep that in mind. If you don't see drug interactions or a drug reason that thyroid is not being absorbed, could it be they've developed celiac disease? A 70-year-old man, status post-aortic valve replacement two years ago for aortic stenosis, presents with widespread ecchymoses on his back and legs. He also has bruising on the back of both hands. His INR three weeks ago was three, which is where you wanted it for somebody with an artificial valve. He says he saw a physician six days ago for a cough and was put on a medication described as a white tablet. When you ask him to be more specific, he says it was a large white tablet. His chronic medications include warfarin, albuterol, and nortriptyline. So this is a guy that's managed on warfarin for a long time with an uh, aortic valve and everything was fine, and now he's bruising everywhere, and he was mysteriously put on a white tablet six days ago. What was he placed on? What was that white tablet? Was it codeine, cephalexin, azithromycin, trimethoprim sulfa, or amoxicillin? Okay, very good. 66% of you, again, about two-thirds of you got this one right, which is trimethoprim sulfa. This is the biggest and most important drug interaction with warfarin as far as how common it is and how serious it can be. So I think this is really fair game for the boards because it's still one of the more common reasons people get admitted to the hospital with a warfarin interaction in the United States. It impedes metabolism and it also affects binding, which is why it's such a serious interaction. Now, some of you chose azithromycin and it does have an interaction with warfarin. It's just, it isn't as great an interaction. It's not as big an interaction. And the fact this guy was bleeding everywhere and he had ecchymoses everywhere, we would suspect a major interaction. So if I have to choose between two drugs that could do it, I'm going to pick the one with the greatest interaction. Board questions often have a right answer and a close to the right answer. It's not a wrong answer. And the hard part is honing in on the right one, not just that it could be true, it's got to be most true. So because trimethoprim sulfa is the biggest cause of a warfarin interaction out there, puts most people in the hospital, it's going to be the right answer here. It also has the greatest degree of elevation of INR of any of the antibiotics. So what are the ones that we need to know about? The most severe interactions with warfarin are trimethoprim sulfa, erythromycin. We almost never use that anymore. Amiodarone has a big interaction. It isn't quite as dangerous because the half-life of amiodarone is something like four or five decades or something like that. It's got such a long half-life that it slowly raises the INR, and we usually catch it by having the person come back in. Trimethoprim sulfa can do it in two days, so very quickly you get up to steady state level and you get into trouble. Propafenone, and then the other one I want you to remember is anything that ends in azole, okay? Azole, antifungals, and metronidazole. They're different classes of drugs, but all of those, azole antifungals and metronidazole, can really raise the INR. I put in the possible category, these are more unpredictable. These are drugs that sometimes raise it a lot, sometimes they don't raise it at all. Less hard, easy to predict, and that's the quinolones, clarithromycin, azithromycin, and surprisingly, omeprazole is on this list. We always think that's a protective thing in somebody who's on warfarin. We'll keep them from GI bleeding by putting them on a little omeprazole. It also has an effect on the P450 system and inhibits, can inhibit warfarin metabolism.
A 39-year-old woman with a prosthetic aortic valve presents with bruising. Her last INR six weeks ago was 2.4. Today it's up to 6.5. She says she's not taking any extra warfarin. So we have a young woman with a prosthetic valve. She's coming in with bruising. Her INR has gone up from her baseline on warfarin of 2.4 up to 6.5. And she says, I haven't taken any extra warfarin. You haven't prescribed anything for her. So my question is, what could she take on a daily basis that she could get a hold of, maybe from somebody else or over the counter that could raise her INR like this? Is it acetaminophen, calcium, an oral contraceptive pill, over the counter ranitidine, or colase? So, which one is it? So the right answer here is acetaminophen. This is a sneaky one, because we always say, ah, the safest thing you can do is take acetaminophen. NSAIDs are tough if you're on an anticoagulant, because you might GI bleed, and we don't want you to bleed more. So acetaminophen's much safer, and that is true. But if people take it every day as a major pain reliever, and they're taking more than a gram, gram and a half a day, it can raise the INR. And it can significantly raise the INR. So if somebody just has to take one, one tablet of a pain reliever, acetaminophen is going to be the safest option. It won't affect it with one or two doses. But if they're going to take it as their everyday, two or three times a day pain reliever, it can raise the INR. There have been three published studies that have shown this. So it's been in the literature for almost 30 years, even though a lot of us haven't heard of it. One study published in the late 1990s showed if you took more than 9,000 milligrams a week, you had a tenfold risk of having an INR over six. So that's about a gram and a half a day. That's not a huge dose of acetaminophen. My favorite one was a double-blind randomized study where they had people on placebo or acetaminophen with their warfarin, and then they crossed them over, and they found their INRs were 1.75 times higher when they were taking four grams a day of acetaminophen. So... Yes, daily acetaminophen can raise your INR. How do we use this clinically? If we're going to put somebody on an everyday dose of acetaminophen, we probably should check their INR in about five to seven days and see if they're raising their INR. It is fine if they're going to take a dose here and there. They don't have to tell you about every time they take a dose if they take it sporadically. Okay, quick, quick uh, sort of summary here for... We talked about trimethoprim sulfa and the problem it causes. I mentioned quinolones being a problem. So a common issue that comes up is you've got a patient on warfarin who has a urinary tract infection. What urinary tract infection antibiotics that work can we use without getting into trouble with warfarin? Penicillins and cephalosporins are fine. They don't really have an important interaction. Nitrofurantoin is okay to use with warfarin. Quinolones, I say, be worried, but it's not as bad as trimethoprim sulfa. So I would say, don't use trimethoprim sulfa. It's too much of a hassle, too dangerous. If you have to use a quinolone, you need to be monitoring them. If you have, a, if you have an option, pick a penicillin, cephalosporin, or nitrofurantoin as your choices, especially for people with cystitis, where all three of those classes of drugs would be okay. Okay, we're going to move on and talk a little bit about statins. A 65-year-old man presents with cough and fever. He's had severe diarrhea for two days. He was on a cruise with a friend who was diagnosed with Legionella yesterday. That's always an important little tidbit. 
when people tell you that. Past medical history, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and hypertension. He's on lisinopril, simvastatin, amlodipine, gemfibrozil, and metformin. He has a chest x-ray showing patchy bilateral infiltrates. His white count's 17,000, and he has a low sodium of 125. So 65-year-old man, cough and fever, diarrhea for two days. He was on a cruise with his best buddy who just got diagnosed with Legionnaire's disease. And your patient has a white count of 17,000, infiltrates on x-ray, and a low sodium. Importantly, he's on lisinopril, simvastatin, amlodipine, gemfibrozil, and metformin. What is the most appropriate treatment for him? Amoxicillin clavulinate, clarithromycin, levofloxacin, cefuroxime, or trimethoprim sulfa? Let's have you go ahead and vote. Okay, good. 60% of you got this one right with the levofloxacin. Typical board question is asking two different things. An ID question over successful treatments for Legionella and recognition of that, and a drug interaction question saying, what is safe to give somebody who's on a slew of meds of these choices? And there are only two antibiotics that would work against Legionella here, clarithromycin and levofloxacin. Clarithromycin has potent inhibitory effects on the P450 system, and it is the single worst drug for drug interactions. So if on the boards they ask if you want to give clarithromycin to anybody, it's probably a drug interaction question, okay? I don't think it's mainstream enough to ask you in any other circumstance than realize you shouldn't give this, okay? So clarithromycin should cue you to a drug interaction question. So we don't want to give clarithromycin. We do want to give Levo. Levo works. Levo's okay. Now, the drug interactions with, with clarithromycin on this case were it affects with the fibrates, it affects simvastatin, and it also raises amlodipine levels here. So this person would get hypotensive from really high levels of amlodipine, and the clarithromycin plus simvastatin plus gemfibrozole puts it at high risk for rhabdomyolysis. So this would be a deadly combination. So what are some of the drugs out there that we need to know that increase statin toxicity? Well, fibrates plus statins can cause rhabdomyolysis. An important pearl is gemfibrozole is 15-fold more likely to do that than phenofibrate. So if you have to give a fibrate to somebody taking a statin, choose phenofibrate. It's going to be less likely to cause a drug interaction. Azole antifungals, potent, potent inhibitors of the P450 system uh, at the, three, the uh, 3YA subunit that statins are metabolized at. So those are a problem. Amiodarone inhibits statins. Erythromycin and clarithromycin, but please note, azithromycin does not. So of the macrolides, azithromycin is an exception. It doesn't have a statin interaction, so that's going to be your macrolide of choice in patients on statins. Protease inhibitors, we don't use those very much. We use them for HIV treatment, but many of us may not be treating HIV patients. The one I want you to really think about on this list and I think is really likely to show up is verapamil and diltiazem, commonly, commonly used in people with heart disease for AFib rate control, maybe for blood pressure, and they have a huge effect on statin levels. So we often don't even think about it. we got a patient with heart disease on their statin merrily going along. They go into AFib, and we want to rate control them. 
We may put them on verapamil and not even think about this. So think about it in real life and especially for the boards. The statin with the fewest interactions is pravastatin and rosuvastatin. Those are the two that are metabolized differently. So those are less likely to get into trouble with drug interactions. So if you are trying to avoid all drug interactions and that's all you care about with your statin, you would pick pravastatin or rosuvastatin. The worst statin is simvastatin, as far as drug interactions, and lovastatin. Those two are terrible for drug interactions. And I think for board purposes, and I think we're moving there in real life too, those two statins generally should be avoided. I know they're cheap, and I know people have been on them for a long time, and it might be okay to let it ride, but those two get more, cause more mayhem than the other statins. So for Board questions, they're going to show up. When you see lovastatin and simvastatin on the med list, again, I want it to trigger in your mind drug interaction question. At least look for that, okay? Side effects for statins, rhabdomyolysis by itself, just giving a statin is very rare, 0.01%. Almost never see hepatotoxicity with statins. Doesn't cause chronic liver disease. About 0.001% can get acute liver failure with statins, but it doesn't cause chronic liver disease, so that's rare. But statin-related muscle symptoms are common. And I know you've all seen that in practice, that up to 5 to 18% of people will have aches when they're on a statin. So what do we need to know about myalgias and statins? It is dose-related. The higher the dose, the higher the likelihood, and probably individual statin-related. Simvastatin's the worst, Pravastatin, fluvastatin, patavastatin are probably on the low end as far as muscle problems. People that are hypothyroid are more likely to get statin-induced myalgias. So we always think about, could it be that they're hypothyroid and I've added a statin to the mix and that's why they're hurting? It's more common in people with low body mass. It's more common in Asian patients because the metabolism of statins are different. There may be a higher risk if you're vitamin D deficient to get statin-related muscle symptoms. We don't think in 2017 that coenzyme Q10 is very helpful. The jury is still out on that, but I, I don't think you're going to get a board question where the right answer is give them coenzyme Q10 to fix their statin-related muscle symptom. I don't think that will be a right answer. It might be a distractor, but I don't think that will be the right answer. Okay, a 68-year-old man has questions about his meds. He is concerned about interactions with his meds. He is on a meprazole, nifedipine, citalopram, and testosterone. And he's wondering, what can I take with my meds? I saw something on TV, and they talked about some kind of beverage. I can't remember what it was, but there was something about my meds that made me worried. So please enlighten me. What beverage should he avoid taking on a daily basis if he's taking omeprazole, nifedipine, citalopram, and testosterone? Should he avoid orange juice, green tea, apple juice, grapefruit juice, or lemonade? Good. 91% of you said grapefruit juice. Absolutely correct. Grapefruit juice is most famous for its statin interaction, especially with Shout out the statins that it's horrible with. Simvastatin, lovastatin, very good. <laughs> it has some effect on atorvastatin too. So, but simvastatin, lovastatin, it can really markedly increase the area under the curve. 
But it also, it also has an effect on nifedipine and dihydropyridines, the vasodilating calcium channel blockers. So nifedipine levels can go way up too. So if it's a juice question, go for grapefruit juice in general. Now it's interesting, this stuff just sticks on the brush border for up to 24 hours and it inhibits first pass metabolism of these drugs. So it's not okay to say, well, just don't drink grapefruit juice with your statin or don't drink grapefruit juice with your nifedipine. The effect may last for hours beyond when they drink the grapefruit juice. So the reason is that the statins as well as, uh, as, well as nifedipine and a few other drugs are metabolized by the CYP3A four-unit subunit of the P450 system, and the, these parts of the grapefruit juice will affect first tab, pass metabolism. Pravastatin, fluvastatin, rosuvastatin, absolutely uninfected, so they can have all the grapefruit juice they want if they're taking one of those statins. To give you an idea how big this is, in a study, 200 milligrams double-strength grapefruit juice, whatever the hell that is, and 80 milligrams of lovastatin or simvastatin, 60 milligrams, it increased the area under the curve 15-fold. That's remarkable. I mean, that's a massive increase in how much statin these people's bodies were subjected to. Okay, so I've already bashed simvastatin a lot, but I'm not done bashing it. Um, it has a major interaction with grapefruit juice. It actually has a mild interaction with warfarin. It can raise INRs a little bit. It has a huge interaction with amiodarone with doubling and tripling under area under the curve with amiodarone. And it has all the other statin worries. So I think in general, the FDA put out a warning saying don't ever go above 40 milligrams for people for simvastatin anymore. So they're worried about it, so I promise you the board is worried about it too. So simvastatin's probably going to be something you want to get a, stop on a, on a med list on somebody on the boards. Okay, 38-year-old woman with rheumatoid arthritis presents with a skin lesion that is painful and has developed over the last 24 hours. She's been having fevers, so she's got this kind of oozy, you press on it, and it's very fluctuant and red around it, really, really, really sore. She's taking prednisone, hydroxychloroquine, methotrexate, 25 milligrams a week, omeprazole, 20 a day, and naproxen, 500 BID. So person with RA gets an acute onset of this fluctuant, red, sore. You press on this, little pussy stuff comes out. She's having fevers. She's taking hydroxychloroquine, prednisone, methotrexate, omeprazole, and naproxen. What is the most appropriate treatment for her? Doxycycline, trimethoprim sulfa, dicloxacillin, or levofloxacin? Okay, good. Doxycycline, and I'm so happy that only a minority of you chose trimethoprim sulfa. This is a drug interaction question with methotrexate. So methotrexate, the effect of trimethoprim sulfa can really raise methotrexate levels, can really have an effect there that you don't want. So if they're on methotrexate, if they're on warfarin, I want you to really be careful about prescribing trimethoprim sulfa in real life and especially on the boards. See that as a worrisome thing. And any time that the, you, you are tempted to prescribe trimethoprim sulfa, always look for the drug interaction because it may be hidden beneath it. 
An 85-year-old man is brought to the ED for evaluation of weakness and nausea. He was diagnosed 10 days ago with prostatitis. His other problems include hypertension, heart failure, and chronic kidney disease. He's on carvedilol, furosemide, trimethyl sulfa, verapamil, and digoxin. Blood pressure is 100 over 60, pulse is 100, temperature 98.4, cardiac exam, grade 2 out of 6, systolic ejection murmur, lower extremity edema is present, sodium is 132, potassium is 6.8, BUN is 37, creatinine is 2.3. So we have an 85-year-old guy, nausea, weakness, diagnosed with prostatitis 10 days ago, lots of medical problems. You see his med list. He's got a sodium 132, his potassium is 6.8, which gets our attention. He's got creatinine of 2.3. What is the most likely cause of his hyperkalemia? Chronic kidney disease, carvedilol, trimethyl sulfa, verapamil, or jejoxin. So is it only his chronic kidney disease that's the cause? Is it the carvedilol, trimethyl sulfa, verapamil, or jejoxin? Great, 90% recognized trimethyl sulfa can raise potassium levels, and he's high risk. He's got kidney disease, and he's old. Big, big risk factors for the hyperkalemic effect of trimethyl sulfa, which is people that are older and people have under, uh, underlying kidney disease. It is also much more likely if they're taking an ACE or an ARB. Okay, so somebody on an ACE or an ARB who you put on trimethyl sulfa is much higher risk to get into trouble than somebody who's not on it. There have been studies in the last five years that have shown increased risk of sudden cardiac death in people who are on ACEs and ARBs who get put on trimethyl sulfa, and we assume that that's probably a hyperkalemic mechanism. Trimethoprim acts like amylaride. It's just like putting somebody on a potassium-sparing diuretic, amylaride. So whenever you add it, always think about, are they already at risk for hyperkalemia due to kidney disease, age, being on an ACE or an ARB? So the drugs out there that can lead to hyperkalemia, ACEs, ARBs, potassium-sparing diuretics, the most important of those is spironolactone. We use a lot of it. We're using a lot of it in heart failure patients now, and sometimes people forget about the stacking effect on hyperkalemia with it. Trimethyl sulfa, NSAIDs, and remember that when we put people on a low-salt diet, they may say, well, I like salt a lot. I'll get salt substitute. Salt substitute is potassium, so got to make sure we remind our patients about that. Okay, when should we not use trimethyl sulfa? Very important for answering board questions. When would it be the wrong answer to prescribe trimethyl sulfa? If they're taking warfarin, if they're taking methotrexate, if they're older with renal insufficiency, worry about it if they're on an ACE-ARB spironolactone as well, and obviously if they have somebody who has a trimethoprim sulfa allergy. A real sort of sucker trick that, that you, they might try on the boards is they'll, they'll give you a case of pneumocystis. And we all know we love trimethoprim sulfa as our best treatment for pneumocystis gervecii pneumonia. We know that. We're all over that. We're ready for that one. And in the long stem, they bury that they have a sulfa allergy, that they had anaphylaxis with sulfa, or they had Stevens-Johnson syndrome with sulfa. But it's in a long clinical stem, and by the end, you go, I know they have PCP, I'm ready. And then they say, how do you treat it? And you go, there it is, trimethyl sulfa. And you go, at least I got this one right. 
So when you see trimethoprim sulfa, I always want you to go back to clinical stem and, and, and convince yourself that they're not sucker punching you, okay? A 60-year-old man presents with peripheral edema. He has been bothered by this for the last six months, but it's become a bit worse in the last three weeks. He recently, three weeks ago, returned from a trip to Thailand. He has no dyspnea or leg pain. He has a past medical history of depression, hypertension, and GERD. His meds are ranitidine, fluoxetine, nifedipine, hydrochlorothiazide, and ginkgo. He's from Seattle. All, all my patients are on ginkgo or some kind of natural thing. Blood pressure 120 over 70, pulse 70, no elevated JVP, normal cardiac exam. He's got 2-plus bilateral edema, and he's concerned about that. He, he wanted to talk about that. Sodium's 135, potassium 3,4, chloride 98, BUN 10, creatinine 1, D-dimer is 0.2 with a normal less than 0.4. So this guy's mainly bothered because of his peripheral edema. What is the most likely cause of his edema? DVT, heart failure, cirrhosis, fluoxetine, ranitidine, nifedipine, or ginkgo? So which of these would be the best explanation given his clinical history and what info we have so far as the cause of his edema? Let's have you vote on it. Okay, good. 89% of you were all over nifedipine. Dihydropyridine related calcium channel blockers, one-third of patients will get edema from them, so we almost expect it as a side effect. And here he had other things done in his workup that would help you decide that he didn't have a DVT. He had a D-dimer that was really, really low, and he's got bilateral disease. Those things would, would make that less likely, so you did great on that. You guys are doing great. You're doing really good. I ask tricky questions in general. So if you guys are getting two-thirds or more right on my tricky questions, you're, you're, you're doing great. Okay, what are some of the things for drug-induced edema? So dihydropyridines are right at the top of the list with a 30% rate. Nifedipine, felodipine, amlodipine are in this category. Pioglitazone. Pioglitazone causes water fluid retention causes edema in a lot of people on it. NSAIDs can cause increased, increased holding on to salt and water as well. When you start people on estrogen and testosterone, they can sometimes get edema from it. And a couple that you may not know, pramipexol, about 7% of people on pramipexol will develop edema. Same thing with gabapentin and pregabalin. Both of those, about 7 to 8% of people on them will get peripheral edema. And omeprazole. Omeprazole, it's not supposed to do that. Yes, it can do it. It's much more common in younger women who are on omeprazole than any other, any other group. It's not a common side effect, but I had to include it on this list because one of my patients came in with a couple of articles and said, I think it's my omeprazole, and I said, no, I don't believe this. So she stopped her omeprazole, and the edema went away, and I said, now you need to go back on it and prove it to me. So she did that, so it made this list. So she, she said, that's how you can get my trust back. You put it on your list and teach other people it can happen. Okay, um, another one, side effect that I, I think would be really fair game for the boards, because this is pretty common, and, and I think sometimes people aren't aware of this, is the effect of NSAIDs on precipitating heart failure in patients at risk for heart failure. So our elderly patients who have multiple risk factors may have subclinical heart failure they don't do much. You know, they're 80 years old. They got arthritis. They don't do a lot. They don't move a lot. So we don't see all the symptoms of heart failure. 
until we put them on an NSAID. This is a study that looked at 365 cases of patients admitted to the heart failure compared to control patients without heart failure. NSAID users had an odds ratio of 2.1 for admission for heart failure, but more important, the odds ratio jumped to 10.5 for first admit for heart failure if a patient had heart disease and they used NSAIDs. So anybody with known coronary disease who used NSAIDs, they had a tenfold increased risk of showing up with first episode of heart failure. And the longer acting the NSAID, the bigger the problem, because the longer acting NSAIDs affect the kidney's ability to handle salt and water 24 hours versus giving them a break. So we want to be careful not be giving NSAIDs to our elderly patients, especially those who have heart failure. On the boards, giving an NSAID to somebody over 75 is always going to be a wrong answer. Why do I know that? Those questions were written by geriatricians, and they absolutely hate NSAIDs. Okay? They hate them. Every card-carrying geriatrician thinks NSAIDs are among the worst things in the world. So they write a test question, and they're going to go, how can I get these people? We'll see if they'll give them an NSAID. Then they deserve to fail. You know, I just know these people. So just be careful with that. Don't fall into that trap. Okay, what are some drugs that increase serum uric acid level? So you all know about diuretics. I'm sure you know hydrochlorothiazide raises serum urate levels and it increases the risk of gout. So that's hydrochlorothiazide, chlorothalidone, loop diuretics do the same thing, okay? Niacin. So niacin, in general, niacin is another drug that you will never pick on this test, okay? Niacin used to be cool in the 80s and 90s. People thought it was helpful for lowering cholesterol and preventing heart disease, we don't believe that's true anymore. So I can't think of many times that anybody would rightfully be on niacin on this exam. But it can raise uric acid levels and trigger gout, so it's a bad drug. Cyclosporin, one-third of people on cyclosporin get elevated uric acid levels and can get gout. One out of three people on cyclosporin. Not commonly used, but for transplant patients, it can be a problem. Ethambutol, pyrazinamide, nah, they're not going to ask you that. An 80-year-old man presents to the ED following a seizure. He has a history of hypertension and chronic neck pain. Medications include amitriptyline, hydrochlorothiazide, tramadol, benazepril, and colase. His exam is unremarkable except for postictal confusion. BUN is 20, creatinine 1.2, sodium 140, potassium 4.2, calcium 9.8. Head CT with contrast shows no abnormality. So he's got a contrast CT, looks okay. So an 80-year-old guy who'd had neck pain, comes in after a seizure. He's on am amitriptyline, hydrochlorothiazide, tramadol, benazepril, and colase. He's just confused. His labs look okay. Um, and he had a head CT with contrast that was not abnormal. What would you recommend for him at this point? Stop benazepril, stop tramadol, obtain a lumbar puncture, obtain an MRI, or start him on phenytoin or dilantin, better known as dilantin. So which of these are you going to do? Okay, yes, tramadol has been associated with seizures. It's much more common in older people. And we're seeing a lot more elderly get put on tramadol um, because it's, you know, of all the choices, it's got a whole boatload of problems, but it's probably a little safer than NSAIDs. And so that's not saying much, you know? That's the smartest guy in the special ed class. You know, it's not, it's not, the, it's not saying that much. And uh, so 
my point being that if you see tramadol on, on the boards, it might be an okay choice in a complicated pain patient, but also think about side effects. Seizures, suicidal ideation, hyponatremia, hypoglycemia have all been associated with tramadol use. 46-year-old woman with diabetes and seizure disorder presents with nausea and fatigue. Physical exam is unremarkable. Meds are gliburide, 5 milligrams a day, metformin, 850 BID, Dilantin, 300 a day, topiramate, 400 a day, pantoprazole, 40 a day. Sodium is 133, potassium is 39, chloride, 112, bicarb, 13, glucose, 158, BUN, 18, creatinine, 1.0. So she's got a bicarb of 13, has an anion gap of 9, okay? So I'm just going to give that so you don't have to take the extra time. Anion gap of 9, bicarb is 13, you see her med list, history of diabetes, seizure disorder, she's sick, and fatigue, nausea and fatigue. What is the most likely cause for acidosis? Is it the dilantin she's on, the topiramate she's on, the metformin she's on, or the pantoprazole she's on? Okay, good, 61% of you chose topiramate, absolutely correct. This is one of those ones a lot of people don't know, which is topiramate causes a non-anion gap acidosis in pretty much everybody on it. And the reason is it's a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. We all have learned that carbonic anhydrase inhibitors cause a non-gap acidosis. We were very comfortable with that with acetazolamide, but most of us have not heard that topiramate is also a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. So everybody on topiramate is going to feel a little off, and it's because they have a chronic non-gap acidosis, and sometimes it can get severe, or if they get sick, you can see it even worse. So non-anion gap acid, hyperchloremic acidosis, the average drop in bicarb is four, but it can be a lot worse. And the other pearl about topiramate is it also can raise uric acid levels. Now, some of you chose metformin thinking Metformin can cause a lactic acidosis that only occurs in people with really bad kidney disease. Really bad. We've learned in the last few years, we've liberalized the use of metformin to include people who have chronic kidney disease, GFRs over 30. So I don't think they're going to ask you a question where the whole point is, does this person on metformin have lactic acidosis unless the patient has renal failure? If you give a Dialysis patient metformin, sure, that's, that's a bad thing to do. But for, I, I, don't, I think they're not going to be hammering that because we're actually moving towards liberalizing metformin use. 66-year-old woman presents with hypotension and confusion. She was in her usual state of health until four years prior when she felt ill and vomited a small amount of bloody material. She did not seek medical attention for two additional hours. She had another episode of emesis, this time of a large amount of bloody material, has had one episode of maroon stool. History is hypertension, osteoporosis, and depression. She's on fluoxetine, benazapril, hydrochlorothiazide, acetaminophen, and estrogen progestin. So we have a 66-year-old hypotensive hematemesis-prone woman here who's been throwing up blood for the last few days. You see she's got three medical problems she's treated for. She's on fluoxetine, benazapril, hydrochlorothiazide, acetaminophen, and estrogen progestin. Which medication has the strongest association with upper GI bleeding that she's taking? Fluoxetine, benazapril, hydrochlorothiazide, hydrochlorothiazide, acetaminophen, or estrogen? 
Okay, good. 67%. Again, two-thirds of you chose fluoxetine. SSRIs increase bleeding risk. They have been proven to increase upper GI bleeding risk, and if you add an NSAID to it, you really increase that risk. The risk of bleeding is higher the older the patient gets, but it's, it's an important association of SSRIs increase upper GI bleeding risk. So a number of retrospective studies show the relative risk for upper GI bleeding three to four-fold increased when people who use SSRIs. The risk is increased to 6.33 if a person's on an SSRI combined with an NSAID, highest risk in elderly, and to the point that you certainly would want to think about putting somebody on gastroprotection in a patient on an NSAID and an, and, and an SSRI. I mean, that combination really does increase upper GI bleeding risk. 69-year-old woman presents with symptoms of severe muscle and joint pain. This has been present for three weeks. She has no fevers, chills, or trauma, past history of hypertension, hypothyroidism, coronary disease, osteoporosis, GERD, and depression. She's taking a meprazole, metoprolol, olendronate, citalopram, and levothyroxine. So we have a 69-year-old really hurting. Her muscles are aching. Her joints are kind of aching. She's just achy everywhere. Three weeks of this, doesn't feel otherwise sick, no fevers, chills, no, hasn't fallen or anything. She, you see her, her past medical history. She's on a meprazole, metoprolol, olendronate, citalopram, and levothyroxine. What is the most likely cause of her pain? Citalopram, omeprazole, alendronate, metoprolol, or worsening hypothyroidism? Okay, good. 77% of you chose alendronate. Absolutely correct. The bisphosphonates can cause generalized body pain. We got an FDA alert, it was five, six years ago, telling us about this. The most common side effect of bisphosphonates is this pain syndrome. You guys all know the rare, rare ones, esophageal ulceration, which is well under one in a thousand, and osteonecrosis of the jaw, which is also very, very rare. We're all aware of those, and our patients are aware of those. But this more common side effect, a lot of times people are unaware of. So we should strongly consider bisphosphonate as the cause of any of our patients who are on them who start aching everywhere. If they look like they suddenly got acute fibromyalgia, it's the bisphosphonate. And you can tell that because 75-year-olds don't get fibromyalgia. Okay, That's a disease that occurs in much younger individuals. So if you have somebody who never had it and then they come in and they look like a fibromyalgia patient at 75, it's the fact they're on a bisphosphonate. So we want to stop the medicine and it will take a long time to get better. Because bisphosphonate stockpile in the bone, it takes months to years to clear that incredible stockpile of bisphosphonate. So they won't get better right away. Even if you diagnose it right and do the right thing, which is stop the bisphosphonate, it will take a while before they get better. A 66-year-old woman presents with fatigue. She has a history of bipolar disorder and reflux disease. She has felt well the past few months up until the most recent few weeks. So she was doing fine the last couple of weeks. Now she's just tired, really, really tired. She's taking rebeprazole, lithium, paroxetine, calcium. Her physical exam is normal. As part of her workup, she's found to have a sodium of 120. So her sodium's 120, potassium's 3.6, BUN3, creatinine 0.7. So just tired, 
You get some labs as you're sorting through this. You go, well, looky here, her sodium's 120. That's probably important. What is the most likely cause of her low sodium? Is it hyperlipidemia, lithium, acute psychosis, rebeprazole, or paroxetine? So which of these is the most likely reason that she's got a sodium of 120? Okay, good. Paroxetine, 64% of you. Very good. So this is really important. SSRIs are the second most common drug to cause hyponatremia behind diuretics, thiazide diuretics, chlorothaladone, hydrochlorothiazide. A third of people get hyponatremic. The next most likely thing on your med list is probably SSRIs, to, SNRIs to a little bit lesser extent. Now, 36% of you chose lithium, and the reason is somewhere in the brainstem of all of us who've gone to medical school is that lithium causes trouble with sodium, and we'll never forget that. But what type of problem does lithium call, cause with sodium? Yeah, nephrogenic DI. Okay, so the boards does this. They're kind of nasty. So they go, okay, I know that people know there's something here, so we're going to get the opposite of what it is. Just throw it in there because it's a time test. It's stressful. Everybody's cruising through the questions as fast as they can. Let's just get them. Again, evil. <laughs> but we got to combat evil with knowledge. So... The right answer here is paroxetine, SSRIs, we got to recognize. The other thing is there's a subgroup of people that are much more likely to get hyponatremic with SSRIs, and she was one of them. So older women, women over 65, if they have low body mass, they're even more likely to get into trouble. And if they're taking a diuretic, they're even more likely to get into trouble. I proved this to myself, unfortunately, um, with one of my patients many years ago, a 93-year-old woman came in really depressed. I'd been treating her for about 10 years with hydrochlorothiazide. Never, her lowest sodium was like 133, 134, fine there. And I, you know, I said, oh, you're depressed. I put her on citalopram. Family brought her in three days later. They said, she stopped eating. She's ready to die. We're okay with that. She's had a good life. And I said, <laughs> I said no. I said, anytime my patient gets sicker after seeing me, I know what the problem is. It's me. It's not her. I said I did something bad to her, and so I did what all internists do. I ordered a bunch of tests, and her sodium was 106. So I admitted her to the hospital and you know, got really good care from our folks there, and they sort of saved her life, and she did fine. And you know, they treated her. Sodium went from like 134 to 106, back up to like 136 eventually, and the darndest thing, it cured her depression. I don't know. You know, the shriveled brain, the swollen brain, back to a shriveled brain, no depression. I don't recommend that. I am not saying that's a good treatment for depression, but there was a silver lining. When I saw her back in a few weeks, she was her normal perky, happy self, and I didn't have to put her on antidepressants. And she wouldn't let me put her on antidepressants anyway. So, Anyway, so I want you to remember, little old ladies, they're the really high risk for hyponatremia with SSRIs. So when we look at the three drugs I want you to know surefire for hyponatremia are thiazide diuretics, SSRIs, carbamazepine, you know, Tegretol, that's another famous one for dropping sodiums. It was the, the drug back when I, was, when I was a resident that we were taught to always remember, and I think they still have old people like me writing test questions, so uh, I think they might stick Tegretol on their carbamazepine, so know that. So we should think before putting SSRIs in our water supply, because there are several things they can do that aren't good, can cause an increased upper GI bleed risk, 
can cause hyponatremia, as we talked about, and sexual dysfunction in 20 to 50% of people taking them. So they have a lot of good they can do, but a lot of mayhem too. Okay, now hydrochlorothiazide has a lot of stuff it can do, and a lot of people are on it, and a lot of patients on your board exam will probably have it on their med list. So let's go through the lab abnormalities hydrochlorothiazide can cause. It can lower serum sodium. It can lower potassium. You're all, all over that. It can raise uric acid levels up. It can raise calcium levels. It's probably the most common cause of hypercalcemia in this country is somebody being on hydrochlorothiazide. And the way you prove that is you just stop it and recheck them. It can increase lipids and it can slightly decrease insulin release. And so people that are at, on the borderline of developing diabetes, sometimes it can push them into getting higher blood sugars. So it does a lot of metabolic stuff. Okay, that's the fun stuff. Now we got to do statistics. Okay, yuck, I know. I, I'm about as excited about it as you guys are. Yuck, I can't believe they still ask this crap. But I think we got to go through it because they do ask questions. And the good news on statistics is if you know the core things, you know, the, you know we're going to cover a few things. If you know them pretty well, these are give me questions. They're not that hard if you know the formulas or you know the pearls. These are going to be pretty easy questions. They're just really dull. Okay, so this is the magic box that we kind of go back to all the time when we're doing statistics questions, which is the how you interpret a test result. If the disease is present and the test result versus when the disease is absent and the test result. So if the disease is present and the test is positive, that's your true positive. That's a good thing. That's what the test is there for. If the disease is present and the test is negative, that's not good. You know, we kind of depend on the test. That's called a false negative. If the disease is not present and the test is positive, that sucks because it makes us think they have the disease when they don't. That's a false positive. And what we really want is if the disease is not present and our test says it's not present, that's great. That's a true negative. So we care about our true positives and true negatives as gold, and the false ones are awful, and they screw things up. And we'll talk as we go through this how we use this information. Okay, a new blood test is developed to screen for pancreatic cancer. The sensitivity of this test is 75%. Okay, so you're told about some theoretical new blood test to screen for pancreatic cancer, and they say the sensitivity of this test is 75%. Which of the following is correct? That means if the sensitivity is 75%, patients with a negative test results have a 75% chance of not having the disease, Patients with a positive test result have a 75% chance of having the disease. In patients who have the disease, 25% have a negative test result. Or in patients with a negative test result, 75% do not have the disease. What, which of these is correct if we know the sensitivity of this test is 75%? So let's have you vote. Okay, we're all over. This is statistics right here. This is just, it gives me hives too, you know? you know? You know how much fun it is when they say, do general medicine, and as part of that, cover statistics. It's like, nobody likes statistics. It's like, yuck. Anyway, so let's go through this. So the, the right answer is C, 
Okay, so this is the definition of sensitivity. So I want you guys all to get this definition down and be able to repeat it in your sleep. And I want it in your brainstem right along with lithium affects sodium, okay? So, because you're going to get some sensitivity questions and they're going to give them in different forms. Calculate it, but they might give it like explain sensitivity to me. So the right answer here is in patients who have the disease, 25% of them have a negative test result because in the definition of sensitivity, if it's 75%, it will mean that 25% had a false negative test. So sensitivity is a proportion of disease population with positive test results. So that's your true positives divided by your true positives plus false negatives. The higher the number of false negatives, the lower the sensitivity. So a really sensitive test, a test that's 99% sensitive, tells you there are very few false negatives. Okay? So how do I remember that? Sensitivity. Sensitivity has an N in it, right? So S, negative. So sensitivity, people with a great sensitivity have very few false negatives. People with a bad sensitivity, when the sensitivity number, when the test has a bad sensitivity, it means there are a lot of false negatives, okay? That's how I kind of remember it. My only way I can remember this crap, you know, I have to make it as simple as possible, keep it so I always remember what that is. So we don't want false negatives if we want a highly sensitive test. False negatives are our enemy. And so if we go back to this case, 75% sensitivity. So that tells me, okay, that means... 25% false negative rate. Because if I just look at 100 people and the number was 75, it means if you look at, if you look at 75 true positives, 75 true positives in the denominator plus 25 false negatives, 75 out of 100 is your 75%. That's how they got to that. Does everybody understand that? Sort of. For statistics, that's marginally okay. So, Homework assignment for you. Absolutely know this definition of sensitivity. Know true positives over true positives plus false negatives. And know how to describe that in words. Okay, that's the type of questions you're going to get. Here's another way we can do it, okay? In a study of 3,000 patients with a history of colon cancer, fecal occult blood testing is done to screen for recurrent colon cancer. 300 patients have positive fecal occult blood tests and 2,700 patients have a negative fecal occult blood test. Colonoscopy is done on all patients, finding 40 colon cancers. 10 patients who had colon cancer, who ended up on colonoscopy having colon cancer, had a positive fecal occult blood test, and 30 patients who had colon cancer ended up having a negative fecal occult blood test. So here's your study, 3,000 patients, Screened for colon cancer using fecal occult blood tests. 300 patients had a positive fecal occult blood test. 2,700 negative colonoscopy on everybody. You only found 40 colon cancers. 10 of those who had colon cancer had a positive fecal occult blood test. 30 of those who had colon cancer had a negative fecal occult blood test. What is the sensitivity for fecal occult blood testing? Is it 90%, 95%? 33% or 
Okay, good. 92% of you got it when you had to do the math because I think we're used to doing these type of questions. So you did a great job of saying the true positives are the people with a positive fecal occult blood test who had colon cancer. And there are only 10 of those. The true positives you put in the denominator as well as 10. And then there were 30 false negatives. Those were people who had colon cancer who had a negative fecal occult blood test. So you put those 30, 10 over 10 plus 30 is 10 over 40, 25%. Okay. A new test for bladder cancer has a specificity of 85%. Which of the following is correct? If you get this brand new test for bladder cancer, you can run on your patients and you're told it has a specificity of 85%. 15% of patients who do have bladder cancer are missed by this test. 85% of patients with bladder cancer test positive for this test. 15% of patients without bladder cancer test positive for this test, or 85% of patients with bladder cancer test positive for this test. So which of these is the best description of specificity? Okay, we just did sensitivity. We're now moving to specificity, and we're starting it with one of these word questions of describe it to me, and I tell you, you got a test that's 85% specific. What does that mean? Okay, let's have you vote. Okay, we're getting a little bit better here. Good, 51% of you chose 15% of patients without bladder cancer will have a false positive test. Okay, so the way I remember the specificity, remember sensitivity, S, and it has an N, which is negative, so we're worried about the negative test results. With specificity, we're worried about a false positive test result. Okay, so positive. So here, this person has a false positive. And if we look at sensitivity, you look at, you look at the, the effect of, then you look at the negative results, but then you look at the test. If you have a false positive in the denominator, the more false positives you have, the lower the specificity. You may have been taught, how many of you have heard the spin and snout thing with, uh, with statistics? Remembering sensitivity that... SN is the first two letters in snout. A highly sensitive test rules a disease out, okay? That people with the disease should have a positive test. So if they don't have a positive test, they don't have a, the disease. That's the idea that the negative, if you have a highly sensitive test, you don't have false negatives. You have very few false negatives. So if the test result comes back negative, you can say, I don't think they have the disease. So a really sensitive test if it's negative, it rules it out. That's kind of how we think in this world. Whereas specificity, the first two letters in specificity, spin, S-P-N, spin, a highly specific test should rule the disease in because if you have a high specificity level, you have very few false positives because in the denominator, there are not many false positives. So that means if the test result comes back positive, you go, they have the disease because there are no false positives. If you have a 99% specific test, you rarely ever get a false positive. Okay? Does that make any sense? That's where the snout and spin come in, and it helps you remember false negatives kill sensitivity. 
The false positives kill specificity. Okay? Okay, let's look at... We're going to move on and talk a little bit about positive predictive value and negative predictive value. And this is kind of a goofy question. And the reason this question... There are, other way, there are many ways you can ask questions, and you have to be ready for graphs, words to tell you, and equations. So you have to be ready for all of these. So my question here is, which point would have the highest positive predictive value for a disease? So if we're setting a point for a test result, okay, you can think of this, maybe you want to think of this, you know, any test result you like, like a PSA test or some kind of test result that has numbers going across where A, B, C, D, all the way out on that axis are, are higher numbers for the test result. And then we have graphed on it are what is the population of these test results where there's no disease and what is the population where there actually is disease present? That's what the two graphs on there are for. So where will we set the number for the test at which point would have the highest positive predictive value for a disease? If we set the test number at A, that would be the beginning of our, our, our realm where we would call it a positive test. At B, at C, or at D, where would we set it to give us the highest positive predictive value for a disease? Okay, you ready? Good, you did well with this. 68% of you said D. And for positive predictive value, I'm just going to go back here. For positive predictive value, we don't want anybody who doesn't have the disease. If we want the highest positive predictive value, we want to make sure that that test, when positive, only includes people with the disease. So you would set your point at the point in the population where you no longer have people with no disease. Okay, that's where point D is. The population is ended of people with no disease, and all that's left are people with disease. That will give you the highest positive predictive value. And the reason for that is we don't want any false positive results with positive predictive value. Okay? So it's, to it's true positives over the true positives plus the false positives. So we want the false positives to be down to zero. And the only way you could, in that scenario I gave you to do that, is we're going to exclude anybody who doesn't have disease, and that would be point D on that graph. Everybody understand that? It's just graphing some of these principles. Okay, let's try it a little different way. Which point would have the highest negative predictive value for a disease? Would it be A, B, C, D, or E? So which one of these would have the highest negative predictive value if we set, if we set the, the lab test where, where we would have the highest negative predictive value for a disease? Okay, let's have you vote on that. Okay, so the right answer here is B, okay? And A is not, a is not a terrible answer here either, and let me show you why. So B is probably ideal because 
with B, you're, the, uh, B is where the first cases start. So you're not going to miss anybody with B. And it probably makes some sense not to include everybody with no disease. But A is going to give you the same thing in regards to you're not going to miss anybody with disease if you pick A. So you guys are getting the concept down here. Okay, so that's good. We want to set our point before any disease starts showing up in the population. You don't want to miss anybody. That will give you the best negative predictive value. From a standpoint, B is probably going to be a little bit better than A because A is going to include everybody. Okay, A is going to mean the negative predictive value is good, but the test will be absolutely worthless, right? Because everybody without disease and everybody with disease would be included. That's pretty much everybody. So the test wouldn't really have any point. So with negative predictive value, we don't want to have any false negatives. The problem, you know, the problem with that one would, would be it just wouldn't be a useful test. But you, I, you know, I think it's not a great question, and all of you got the concept right, so I'm real happy with that. 100% of you got the concept right and stayed away from anybody with disease. Okay, a study is done to evaluate mammography as a screening tool for women between the ages of 40 and 45. 1,100 mammograms are obtained. 25 women have a positive mammogram and turn out to have breast cancer. 175 women have a positive mammogram and don't have cancer. 890 women have a negative mammogram and don't have cancer, while 10 women with a negative mammogram end up having breast cancer. Okay, so 1,100 mammograms, 25 with a positive mammogram turn out to have breast cancer. 175 positive mammograms do not have breast cancer. 890 have negative mammograms, do not have cancer, while 10 with negative mammograms end up having breast cancer. What is the negative predictive value for mammography? Is it 20%, 90%, 93%, 96%, or 99%? So I'm going to give you a little extra time here because you've got to at least look at some numbers and set up your equations and, and estimate to answer this question. So I'm going to give you probably... 15, 20 seconds to do that before we move on to the have you vote. Okay, let's have you vote now. Okay, good. 84% of you got this one right. You guys are really good with putting all these numbers in. So that's real good. So negative the negative predictive value are the true negatives over the false negatives plus the true negatives. In this case, we had 890 women who had negative mammogram who didn't have breast cancer. We had 10, we had, uh, we had the 890 again, but we had 10 women who had negative mammogram who actually had breast cancer, so that's where the 10 number comes in. So you got 890 over 900, and you do the math there, and it's almost 99%. And that's where that number came from. So it's using these equations. So I think you, you all seem to have the equations down. The homework for you is make yourself explain it in words so that when they, when they give you questions that are this in word format, you'll be just as good as if they give you numbers. Okay, let's move on to a different concept. In many labs, the cutoff for a normal PSA is 4. Okay, so that's a normal for many, many labs. 
what would happen if we changed the cutoff for a normal PSA to 2.5? We said, you know, we want to move that cutoff to 2.5. The sensitivity and specificity would increase. The positive predictive value would increase, but the negative predictive value would decrease. The positive and negative predictive value would increase. The sensitivity would increase, but the specificity would decrease. So which of these would happen if we change the normal PSA value from 4 being the upper limit of normal for normal for the upper limit of normal and we say now the new upper limit of normal is 2.5 anything above 2.5 we can call abnormal now we used to call that normal what would happen let's have you vote Okay, good. Now we got this one. We got this one under control here. 84% got this right, where you would pick up more cases. The sensitivity would increase. You would end up feeling better about, about your negative results because you're making it harder to get a negative result. So your sensitivity would increase, but you're going to pick up a lot more false positives. So the specificity plummets. Remember, we say what kills the specificity is having more false positives. And when you shift the PSA to a lower number, you're going to have a lot more false positives. So the sensitivity goes up, the specificity goes down. Okay, a new therapy for lung cancer is extremely successful, prolonging life by an average of three years. Obviously, this is a mythical case, okay? So... We got a new incredible therapy for lung cancer. It's extremely successful, prolonging life by an average of three years. This treatment becomes the standard of care for lung cancer patients. So it becomes something that's done for almost all lung cancer patients because it gives at least a three-year improvement in their life expectancy. What effect does this have on lung cancer statistics? It would increase the incidence of lung cancer, increase the prevalence of lung cancer, increase the sensitivity of screening tests, decrease the specificity of screening tests, or reduce the positive predictive value of screening tests. So the new therapy extends life by three years for lung cancer patients. What is it going to do to lung cancer statistics? Let's have you vote. Okay, good. So this is going to increase prevalence. So remember, it's not going to do anything to incidence, which is just what we find at a given time, because we're just keeping people alive who've already been diagnosed. So, but it will increase the number of people living with lung cancer at any given time. So it does increase the prevalence. So incidence means the number of newly diagnosed cases during a specific time period, whereas the prevalence is the number of cases alive at a certain date. Okay, so we'll, prevalence of lung cancer would go up because we, people wouldn't just get it and die. Now, there is an effect of prevalence on positive and negative predictive value. Prevalence of a disease within a screening population um, really affects it. As the prevalence of a disease falls, the positive predictive value and the neg- fall, drops and the negative predictive value rises. So... This is really, really important for diseases like, uh, if you have a disease like 
you know, you take a really, really rare diseases or diseases that become more rare, then you get, if you if you get test results back positive, it's the positive predictive value really isn't very helpful for you anymore. Less common a disease, the more likely a positive test represents a false positive. And I think the best example of this is pheochromocytomas as super rare, rare tests. Any one test for a pheochromocytoma by itself isn't all that good. You're more likely to have a false positive than a true positive. The flip side of that is if you look at hepatitis C testing in, in, in a cohort of patients who are injection drug users, where you start out knowing that 80 to 90% of them should have a positive test. You've got a prevalence that's super high. You get a positive test result back. It's almost always a true positive because you have a high prevalence in a certain population. Everybody understand how disease prevalence impacts our ability to interpret testing. If it's a common disease, the tests work better than if it's a rare disease. Okay, a researcher wants to study the effects of exposure to high doses of aspartame in the development of renal cancer. He wishes to complete his study within 15 months. So he doesn't have years and years to do this, and his goal is to get this all done in, in, in 15 months. So I'm going to ask you what study design would allow this person to come up with a research study that could help him with this question over a 15-month time period. Would it be, what would be the most appropriate study design for him to design? A case series, a case control trial, a randomized control trial, or a cohort study? Which of these would help him get the most information in 15 months? Let's have you vote. Okay. So the right, the right answer here is a case control trial. Because first of all, you need to, if you, you know, I think a cohort study isn't a bad idea. The problem is renal cancer isn't that common. If you do a cohort, you'd have to have a huge cohort and you'd have to follow a lot of people over 15 months to find enough renal cancer cases. And then you'd have to get all your information up front. That's almost an impossible task. Most cohort studies are longer than a short period of time. A randomized control trial would be really hard because you'd have to randomize people to using aspartame and watching them versus no aspartame. And for something that's not that common, you'd probably have to follow them out over many, many, many years to be able to find something. And a case series isn't going to prove anything. Okay, So in this case, what you do would be a case control trial. In case control studies, you look at something that you think might be a problem. You look at your cases. You find controls that pretty much fit with them except for the one variable that may be different in them. And for every case, you get a bunch of controls and see what happened with those controls. And that starts to make noise. These case control trials are extremely important at getting a scientific question right in the crosshairs where we can then study it better. Okay? So we're going to ask you, our next question is put this information into, into, into context. So... Which of the following is the best example of key medical information derived from a case-controlled study? Okay, which of the following is the best example of key medical information derived from a case-controlled study? ACE inhibitors delay progression of diabetic nephropathy. Tricyclic antidepressants decrease the pain of post-herpetic neuralgia. Triple therapy against H. pylori can cure peptic ulcer disease. 
or cigarette smoking can cause lung cancer. Which of these would the case control studies would make the most sense or did were used to help us with getting to the answer? Great. 69% of you went for cigarette smoking. So here was some kind of exposure and they could look at what's different among all the lung cancer patients. They look at a variable like cigarette smoking, compare it to controls and people who didn't have lung cancer and look at that and get information and then you can study it more deeply. The other ones were all, these people got the drug, these people got placebo and what happened to them. Certainly the nephropathy studies, it's a drug intervention, so that's not really a case controlled study when people get a, you know, a drug intervention like that. The other one, certainly for pain, that would definitely come from a randomized controlled study. And the same thing for something like H. pylori curing peptic ulcer disease. You had a group who get treated versus a group who didn't get treated. So that would not be, that would all be an intervention and that would not be a case controlled series. Whenever you have a medical intervention with drug therapy, you're out of the realm of case control. Case control you might see if you're looking at a weird side effect of something that might have caused mortality down the road, you might be able to look at people who are exposed to a drug, but it won't be an actual pharmaceutical study like the first three were. Our next one here. An average normal platelet count is 225,000 with a standard deviation of 50,000 platelets. Okay, so that's, I'm just going to tell you, average normal platelet count 225 and standard deviation is 50,000 for the sake of this question. What percentage of normal individuals would have a platelet count less than 125,000? So what percent of the normal population would have a platelet count less than 125,000? Would it be 1%, 2.5%, 5%, 10%, or 15%? So let's have you go ahead and answer now. Okay, so the right answer here is B, 2.5%. And this is a really important concept. So it's a concept, and we use this, this is our whole thing where our p-value comes from, which is the idea that 95% of a normal population will fall within two standard deviations of the mean. So that's the core info needed for this question. Now, that means that 5% fall outside the mean. Now, why isn't C... 5% a correct answer if 95% are within two standard deviations of the mean. Well, five per, of that 5%, half of it will be really high, half of it will be really low. So each tail will be 2.5%. So the group that have a platelet count under 125,000 will be the low tail. There would also be a group that would have a platelet count over 325,000, that would be the 2.5% on the high end, okay? So this is asking, do you recognize each tail and what that represents? So that's why 2.5% is the correct answer. That is the number that we derive from knowing 95% of a population is within two standard deviations of the mean. The other 5% of the population are outliers. 
half high, half low. Okay? So we use this information for p-values, and generally we consider statistical significance of a study if there's less than a 5% chance that the results occurred by random, just a random of random events. In other words, we know that 5% of a population are going, to outlie, are going to be outside that two standard deviations of the mean. The p-value is saying, we're going to consider it statistically significant if we believe it's a 95% chance that this is real, that this study result is truth and it's not an outlier. The better, the, the lower that number is, the better it is. The lower the p-value, the stronger we think the study's conclusions are. If it's a one in a thousand chance, we think that's better than if it's a 5% chance. But for the magical term of statistically significant, we have accepted it at the 5%. So if the p-value is less than 0.05, we call that statistically significant. That is very important for you to answer some of the questions you're going to get thrown at you because they will ask you about, was there statistical significance here? And they're going to ask it in a bunch of different ways. Okay? So the lower the better. A p-value of 0.001 is better than a p-value of 0.01 as far as statistical significance, which is better than 0.10. 0.10 we would say is not statistically significant. And if they say, which of these two is less likely due to chance if the p-value is 0.001 or 0.01, you'd say 0.001 is less likely to be due to chance. Okay, a meta-analysis is done to see if blood glucose monitoring leads to lower glycohemoglobin levels. Several studies are chosen for the meta-analysis. Okay, so we're doing a meta-analysis and we look at a bunch of studies. Here they are. Here's a picture of the studies picked for the meta-analysis. Remember, we're looking to see if, if uh, blood glucose monitoring lowers glycohemoglobin levels. Here is the picture you're given of all the studies. Okay. The bottom picture is all the studies combined. What is the correct interpretation? A, blood glucose monitoring has a small statistically significant improvement in hemoglobin A1c. Blood glucose monitoring leads to a small statistically significant worsening in hemoglobin A1c. Blood glucose monitoring leads to a moderately statistically significant improvement in hemoglobin A1c, or blood glucose monitoring is not associated with a statistically significant change in hemoglobin A1c. So which of these best describes the result of that meta-analysis? So we're going to have you weigh in on that now. Good, 75% of you are all over this, and this is another concept that you could easily be tested on, and that concept is one where they may give it to you graphically, and for statistical significance, if it crosses for, for, a, for a risk factor, if it crosses one, it's not statistically significant, for an intervention, if it crosses zero, the zero line, it's not statistically significant. And in this one, you see all four studies 
the confidence intervals crossed zero. Everybody see that? The four, the four lines up here, 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 they all crossed they all cross zero. And not surprisingly, when you combined all the studies, it crossed zero as well. So by crossing zero, it means it's not statistically significant. So there were no calculations or anything to do here. You just saw visually that it crossed that zero line. You know this is not a statistical significant meta-analysis. That's your answer. A study looks to see if there is an association between use of methylphenidate in childhood and depression during adulthood. A relative risk of 2.3 was found with a p-value of less than 0.05. Okay? So a study looks to see if there is an association between use of methylphenidate in childhood and development of depression in adulthood. A relative risk of 2.3 was found and you're told that a p-value was less than 0.05 for this study. My question for you is, which of the following would be possible 95% confidence intervals for this study? 0.8 to 0.46, 0 0.8 to 3.8, so the first one's 0 0.8 to 4.6, second one 0 0.8 to 3.8, third one is 0.6 to 4.2, fourth one is 1.2 to 4.0, and the fifth one is 2.3 to 5.6. So which of these is a confidence interval that makes the most sense for this study? Which of these could accurately be a confidence interval in this study where they said the relative risk was 2.3 and the p-value is 0.05? So let's have you vote. Okay, the right answer here, this is really, really important stuff because you, you had trouble with this one. You guys have been just hammering all the questions, and this one, I gotcha. The right answer here is D. Why do I know A, B, and C are absolutely wrong and I shouldn't be considering them? Anybody? They all cross, yeah, they cross one, right? So that, that would mean it's non-significant. By crossing one, I've proven those aren't in the mix because I told you the p-value is less than 0.5. So that is code for it's statistically significant. So that means that the p-value doesn't, that, that means the confidence intervals don't cross one. Because remember I said, if you're looking at a relative risk for, for an intervention here, one means it, there's no effect. It's no different whether the kid got methylphenidate and depression or not. We said the relative risk is 2.3 and it's statistically significant, so it can't cross one. So we eliminate anything that crosses one because we know it's statistically significant. That leaves us with D and E. Now, how come I know E isn't right? Yeah, it's not a confidence interval. Right? It's like the confidence interval isn't going to start with your number. Relative risk of 2.3, a confidence interval includes your relative risk. It includes it. It doesn't start at it. So there's no way you could have a confidence interval that started at the low end and just went up. That would be pretty much impossible. So that was a tricky choice for you because it puts the number in there. And it's a, it's, when people write test questions, they sometimes try to do evil things like this. They go, well, I'll put 2.3 in there because that's the actual number and that might get somebody to pick that. But from a understanding the whole concepts, it doesn't make sense that your confidence interval would not go below the actual number. 
when you look at every study, the confidence interval includes a number. It doesn't start at that number, okay? So it's kind of a tricky question. I'm throwing these not to be a jerk. I just want to prepare you for the, you know, people who write, the type of people that write these exams, okay? So, so 95% confidence interval crosses zero for a treatment, then it's not significant. For relative risk or odds ratio, if it crosses one, it's not significant. That's important concepts to have down and have that really down cold so you can just get those questions right and move on. Okay, a quick comment on lead time bias. Lead time bias is a concept where if you make a diagnosis early, it might look like you're improving survival. It doesn't mean that people really live longer. It just means that they live longer with that disease. I think a great example of that is probably prostate cancer. That if we really aggressively look for prostate cancer in people, we'll find a whole bunch of people that are diagnosed with prostate cancer many years before they die. And if you decide to treat them, you might pat yourself on the back and say, look at this. He was diagnosed with prostate cancer at 64 and he died at 89 it had to be the proton beam therapy I gave them. No, it may well be lead time bias. That if we, if we look carefully for early diagnosis in a disease that may not be changed by early diagnosis, it just looks like people are living longer with the disease. So it's overestimation of survival duration among screen-detected cases when we are saying survival is based on diagnosis. So I think the best example is prostate cancer. That's one that gets used in literature all the time of giving an example of what lead time bias is. Okay, a study is done to test a new treatment for heart failure. Patients received usual heart failure treatment plus drug X or usual treatment plus a placebo. 10 of 50 patients who got the drug died and 20 of 50 patients who received placebo died. So Less patients who got the drug died compared to those who got the placebo. So I'm going to ask you to calculate the number needed to treat. Given these numbers, what is the number needed to treat for this new drug? Remember, 20 out of 50 in the placebo group died, 10 out of 50 in the drug treatment group died. What is the number needed to treat? This is a very common Easy question to write and ask you. Is it 2? Is it 5? Is it 10? Is it 15? Or is it 50? So let's have you go ahead and answer this one. Okay, great. 70% of you got that number needed to treat of five. Absolutely correct. And what we want for number needed to treat, it's one over what, what, the, what the risk of death is in the placebo group minus the risk of death in the treatment group, okay, the rate of death in the treatment group. So you're really looking at absolute risk reduction. So if, if 40% in this case of those who got placebo died and 20% of those who got treatment died, it's 1 over 0.4 minus 0.2, 1 over 0.2, which equals 5. So it's always 1 over the absolute risk reduction. Now you might be asked to calculate a number needed to harm. The number needed to harm is a little bit like the flip of that in the sense that 
the, if you're harming people, then the rate of harm is greater in the treatment group than the placebo group. So example, if we say that we have a treatment like, uh, let me take example, the CAS study from the late 80s where they gave antiarrhythmics to people to see if that prolonged life, and they found that more people died who took it than lived, they found the number needed to harm was something like 8% of the people who got the treatment died, 4% of those who got the placebo died, so they found their number needed to harm was 1 over 0.08 minus 0.04. It's the same thing, you just put the higher number first, the harm number first, and then that, that is how many people you have to give the treatment to to harm one person. Okay, so just as likely you'll get a number needed to harm calculation as you will a number needed to treat. And it's one over the event rates, the risk reduction, so you can calculate the events. Okay, in the, if the presence of peripheral edema has a sensitivity of 80% and a specificity of 40% for the presence of cirrhosis, what is the likelihood ratio if a patient has edema? So if the presence of peripheral edema has a sensitivity of 80%, specificity of 40% for the presence of cirrhosis, what is the likelihood ratio if a patient has edema? Is it 3, 2.42, 1.33, or 0.75? So this is a question to see if you know how to calculate likelihood ratios, which have become very popular in the last five years. And I suspect it would be a very popular question to ask on the boards because this has really started to be show up in, in more articles and in, in more textbooks on how to interpret information. So let's have you go ahead and calculate it. Okay, the right answer here is D, 1.33. And we'll go through the formula. I want you to know this formula. I want you to have like, you know, six, six formulas down for the boards. You know, you're going to know how to do sensitivity, specificity, negative predictive value, positive predictive value, number needed to treat, and figure out how to do likelihood ratios. So for a positive likelihood ratio, it's the sensitivity over 1 minus the specificity, okay? Sensitivity here was 0.8. Specificity was 0.4. So 0.8 over 1 minus 0.4, that's 0 0.6. 0 0.8 over 0.6 becomes 1.33. That's how we calculated 1.33. So if you, know, if you know the formula, it's a really easy one. So this is... Oh, these are, I put these on my list of what to look in the last two days before boards. I mean, these are things that maybe we can't keep in our mind all the time, and we normally would just look it up and do it if we needed to. But you're probably going to be asked to produce this, so put this on your short-term memory list. If the absence of peripheral pulses has a sensitivity of 90% for peripheral arterial disease and a specificity of 95%, what is the negative likelihood ratio for peripheral arterial disease if a patient has peripheral pulses? In other words, how do we get a neg what do we get a, what we call a negative likelihood ratio? That is, that if these things are if this is present, it makes the diagnosis much less likely. So how do we calculate that? Let's have you go ahead and calculate the negative likelihood ratio if the sensitivity is 90% for peripheral arterial disease and specificity 
of 95% if a person has absent pulses, what is the negative likelihood ratio for PAD if a patient has peripheral pulses? Okay, good. So 90, 68% of you got 0.1. So the way we calculate this is we take 1 minus the sensitivity and divide it by the specificity. Okay, 1 minus sensitivity divided by the specificity. And so this is how, what we use to look at a negative test result and see how much less likely something is with a negative test. So the negative test here is he had pulses. A positive test would have been if he had pulses. If he didn't have pulses, then we would have known there was a high likelihood of peripheral arterial disease, and we could have then put it into the positive likelihood ratio calculation to come up with a positive ratio. Okay? So this is a hot topic in the last 10 years. I think this is a fair game for the boards because it's really gained a lot of steam. So at least know these uh, calculations, how to do the calculations to be ready for this. Okay, we're going to move on and talk about geriatrics. I'm going to talk to you about falls. I'm going to do as little as I can to talk to you about pressure ulcers. I, I just don't think that's something you're going to get a lot of questions on. We're going to spend a lot of time, we're going to spend some time with depression, delirium, dementia, those issues. We're going to talk a little bit about, uh, we may talk a little bit about infections, I don't think we're going to do a lot about that, actually. We're going to talk about erectile dysfunction. We're going to talk a lot about incontinence, prostate disease, and geriatric urology. Okay, a few things about falls. Um, as we get older, we all fall. It's pretty amazing. If you look at 70-year-olds, 25% uh, fall risk, it goes up to 50% over one decade. So 50% of 80-year-olds have a risk of falling in one year. That's pretty amazing. And the catastrophic effects of falls, fractures, people can get, uh, can get paralyzed from having spinal fractures. Certainly breaking arms and legs is common. And of course, hip fractures have a huge impact on mortality. There are a lot of reasons for this. The main reason is as we get older, we just accumulate a lot of these risk factors. Poor vision, neuropathy becomes very common as we get older. Lower extremity weakness becomes common for a whole bunch of reasons. Orthopedic reasons, people get, uh, get, get problems with their back and that causes uh, weakness. They stop exercising and walking because of too much pain. They get neurologic diseases, all those reasons. Medications. The older you get, the higher the risk you are to, for being on a medication, and many of the medications can increase fall risk. If you've had one fall, then you double your risk for the next fall. So I say 50% of 80-year-olds, uh, 80-year-old who falls probably has a 75% risk of having another fall in the next year. Cognitive impairment and arthritis. People are favoring things, and that leads to fall. So you can see that by the time you're 80, the likelihood that you don't have something on that list is very, very tiny, so it makes sense that we have fall risk. If you look at the famous medicines for fall risk, and these are the ones I think you're going to get hammered on on the boards by the geriatricians who write these questions, tricyclic antidepressants. Now, we don't use them as much as we did back when I was a resident when they were the only treatment we really had for depression, but they still are used for pain syndromes, to, for treatment of chronic pain, so you will have some patients on them. 
They get fall risk because they can get orthostatic blood pressure changes with them. Benzodiazepines. Two to three-fold increased fall risk on benzos. Geriatricians hate benzos. You do not... You have to have a great reason to put an older person on a benzodiazepine. I'm not saying we never put them on it, but we don't put them on it for sleep in general. We don't put people on benzodiazepines because they're a little bit nervous. We have to have a good reason for it. Generally, geriatricians hate that. Vasodilators, ACE inhibitors, vasodilating calcium channel blockers, isosorbide, things like that that can cause vasodilation, cause orthostatic hypotension, increase fall risk. And then antipsychotic medications increase fall risk as well. So think of things that work in the brain really aggressively can increase fall risk, and things that suddenly change blood pressure tend to increase fall risk. A 76-year-old woman is brought for evaluation for several recent falls. She lives in a nearby nursing home. She spends much of her day in bed getting up for lunch and dinner. She has type 2 diabetes, hypertension, coronary disease, and reflux. Her meds are omeprazole, nortriptyline, hydrochlorothiazide, acarbose, and estrogen. So, got a 76-year-old, has had some falls, lives in a nursing home, spends her day in bed, gets up for lunch and dinner, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, coronary disease, and reflux. She's on omeprazole, nortriptyline, hydrochlorothiazide, acarbose, and estrogen. What would you recommend for her? A 24-hour Holter monitor, event recorder monitor, stop nortriptyline, or begin alendronate? See what you do, how you do on this. I am predicting you're going to really do well on this. Look at that, 100%. I've never seen that before. Everybody give yourselves a round of applause. That was very good. I, that's the first time I've ever seen that here. Very good. So, yes, geriatrics question, stop the drug. Anything that could possibly be a cause, unless there's something really shining in the clinical stem that really pulls you away, geriatricians want you to stop drugs. So rule number one for geriatric exam questions, if you can stop a medication, do it. That's the first thing we're always going to do. Rule number two, if you can't stop a med, order physical therapy. Okay? 77-year-old man who is a nursing home resident is evaluated for a recent fall. He has some neuropathy and some decreased quad strength. He has a DEXA scan done with a T-score at the spine of minus 0.8 and minus 0.6 at the hip. He has a history of hypertension and GERD. So we have a 77-year-old nursing home resident. He had a fall, a little bit of neuropathy, some decreased quad strength. DEXA shows T-score minus 0.8 and minus 0.6. What would be the recommended as the next most appropriate step? Begin teriparatide, begin alendronate, begin hydrochlorothiazide, recommend special shoes, or check a vitamin D level. So what's the next step? Good. 88% chose check vitamin D level. Now, there's a little bit more concern about vitamin D. You know, 10 years ago, everybody thought it was the answer for everything. And especially in geriatrics, the idea, you know, so many of our elderly are vitamin D deficient because they live in nursing homes or they do not get outside very much. Their diets are kind of scattered. So you see a lot of vitamin D deficiency in the elderly. Studies were done initially that showed, you know, if you replace their vitamin D, their fall risk goes down. But there have been some more recent studies that show if you just give everybody vitamin D, not only does their fall risk not go down, it might go up. I don't know why that is. I don't think people fully understand that. But the issue is 
it is reasonable to see if somebody's really vitamin D deficient who's at risk for vitamin D deficiency who is falling. So you did very, very well with that. So the right answer here is E. I'm glad that none of you wanted to start a medicine. That's good geriatrics 101. Usually our first step isn't starting a medicine. It's find any ex- exception. To do anything you can but start a medicine and only start a medicine if you're threatened. That's really generally what you do. And there are a couple of questions we'll cover where starting a medicine is the right thing. But your, your uh, instincts are very good here for geriatrics. You're off to a really good start here. So vitamin D deficiency is very common in our nursing home patients. They have a higher fall risk. It can also cause some lower extremity pain in them. So I think checking them for vitamin D deficiency if they fall is an appropriate thing to do. So what is our therapeutic approach to falls? First thing we want to do is a good assessment of the patient. The get up and go test is probably the best thing you can do for their fall risk. How easy is it for them to get out of a chair? You have them fold their arms in front of them and say, get out of the chair. If they can't do it, their fall risk is much greater. If you say, get out of a chair and you watch them and they're pushing and pushing and they're kind of rocking for a while and they're twisting, they finally get up, that person's going to fall. That is a high risk for fall if it takes them a long time to do that, as opposed to your 88-year-old person who bounces up out of the chair, they don't use their arms, that person's a very low fall risk. So that's a nice test to do a quick assessment for fall risk. They might ask you that. Which of these physical diagnosis maneuvers is going to be best for that? I think the get up and go test is fabulous. The other thing that's really good is observe their walking. Do they have arm swing? Do they look steady on their feet? And most important is gait speed. Can they walk relatively fast? People who are at high fall risk know it, and they walk slow, and they walk very unsteady and very insecure in their walking. Go ahead and evaluate them for lower extremity weakness. If we find that, it's always good to do some strength training, physical therapy. Remember, number two is always order physical therapy if you can't stop a med. Strengthen their quads. Strengthen everything in their lower extremities. Gait and balance training is important too. If they don't have a good get up and go test and they're kind of wobbly, send them to the physical therapist to do a gait assessment and balance training. They will watch them and they will see if they're at fall risk. They will teach them how to use a walker. They'll teach them maybe they're a good person for a cane. And if not that, they're going to teach them balance exercises so their fall risk goes down. Again, none of these are medicines. If they're on medicines, stop the drug, substitute a drug that doesn't have the same risk if you can. If orthostatic hypotension, reduce drugs that are going to worsen it, that will make them more orthostatic. Also, try to separate their drugs from meals. Having them take all their drugs with a big meal can make it worse. And then the other thing you can do is give them compression stockings that keep fluid from always building up in their legs and keeping it in their circulation. And then the other thing that's pretty important for all people who have fallen is make sure that that somebody is assessing their home. Yes, you can send somebody from physical therapy out. That gets expensive. Have, Have the grandson, have somebody in the family go out there and look and get rid of all throw rugs, anything that's slippery, make sure that the rooms are well lit, all those things to make sure that they don't have higher risks for fall. Once a person's fallen, it may be their environment that's putting the risk, and that's an easy thing to change. Light it up, get rid of throw rugs, get rid of the cat, you know. That's always a good thing to do, but that's, that's another story. I won't get into my cat, my cat hatred here. 
Actually, to defend cats a little bit, the risk is much higher with a dog to trip over, but dogs are great. They do all these other beneficial things for people, so I can't go on record, I guess I just did, as saying that dogs are kind of dangerous because in the elderly, they trip over dogs more than they do cats because cats hate to be stepped on. You know, dogs are like, Ooh, if you want to step on me, that's okay, you know, so they don't get out of the way. Okay, we're going to move on to pressure sores. Very, very common. Uh, you know, as people get older and they get more debilitated or younger people that can't move and there is pressure uh, placed on the tissue, these things happen. One thing that's important is poor nutrition really increases the risk. So people that are not eating and are, are getting more and more emaciated not only getting thinner may put some pressures on people, but the ability to heal an early pressure sore is compromised. So any places where there's pressure, the sacrum, trochanter, heels, uh, iliac crest, it all, always depends on what the person, if the person's lying in bed, you'll see pressure sores in certain areas. You can even see them on the back of the head sometimes. Um, and then people versus people sitting in a wheelchair, for example, you're going to see pressure sores in different areas. Stage one is just a little bit of redness. Stage two is a superficial ulcer. Stage three is full thickness skin loss. And stage four are multiple layers of tissue loss from more, more severe ischemia and, uh, and, and pressure breakdown. As far as what to do about it, the most important thing is having the person change pressure, not put pressure on those areas. And that is especially important at all stages, but early stage to, event, to avoid these pressure sores becoming later stage pressure sores. As far as an actual therapy that you could write an order for, for early stage non-infected, the hydrocolloid dressing, things like duoderm, putting them over it, seem to be effective. Um, when they have bad necrotic tissue, then removal of the necrotic tissue is important to allow healing. So surgical debridement is a really, really good approach. Wet to dry dressings is a form of debridement. The dressing will then dry on it, and then when it's removed, it will partially debride. But surgical debridement is needed for these, these necrotic wounds. We're going to spend a whole lot more. And, and I tried to think of questions for... Um, for the pressure ulcers, and I just, you know, I've written probably about, about five to 10,000 questions in my life, both for the, for the NBME and uh, for my course, my ACP board review course, for this course, working with medical students, and I truly could not come up with pressure ulcer questions that were not tr trivial. Like, what do you do? Well, you move them off, you move them off the sore. Um, they, they all became more questions of what wouldn't you do, and the reality is that most questions are not, you would do all the following except that you are never going to get asked that question. It's not really allowable for a licensing exam. They all are action-oriented about what's the appropriate thing to do, and I just could not come up with anything for pressure ulcers, so I apologize for that, but I didn't want to give you stuff that was just total garbage. So we're moving on to things that I think are a lot more likely to be tested and I think have more nuances that you can learn from. So we're going to move on and talk about geriatric psychiatry issues. <clears throat> a 70-year-old man is brought to the ED by his family because he's been talking nonsense for the past three days. He believes his family wants to kill him and his wife is a paid assassin. He also believes he is continually being transported all night long against his will. We could prove that he wasn't being transported all night long against his will, but I wasn't so sure about the paid assassin piece. 
He has been feeling bad for two weeks with fatigue, lethargy, and confusion. His medical problems include Parkinson's disease, hypertension, recurrent urinary tract infections, and atrial fibrillation. His meds are warfarin, diltiazem, ciprofloxacin, selegiline, hydrochlorothiazide, and lisinopril. His exam, blood pressure 140 over 90, pulses 80 and irregular, temperature 99.1. He's got a non-focal exam uh, as far as his neuro exam. His hemoglobin's 13, crits 39, white counts 8,000, sodium 135, potassium 3.9, bicarb 26, BUN 30, creatinine 2.1, INR 1.9. So he's just been talking nonsense what his family says. He's really not, he, he kind of goes in and out of, of when you talk to him making any kind of sense and doesn't really have anything on exam that's all that interesting. His labs, you can see them there. You look at his med list there. What is the most likely cause of his symptoms? So this, this, this confusional state he's in and is just acting more paranoid, just acting very different to his family. Paranoid schizophrenia, paranoid personality disorder, delirium due to infection, drug side effect of ciprofloxacin, or a stroke due to atrial fibrillation. So which of these makes the most sense? So I'm going to go ahead and have you answer now. Okay, so the right answer here, I think, is that uh, D, this is a quinolone side effect. And, and I think C isn't unreasonable that, that you know, but he's, he's, being, he's being treated. He's on therapy. He, he's afebrile. His white count's okay. There's nothing that we've given you in the clinical stem that looks like this guy's got ongoing infection that's not being treated. There's also a lot more controversy in the geriatric literature about the whole truism we've taught you about all these bad things that happen to older people with urinary tract infections. And there's a lot of controversy about that now that we maybe are overcalling urinary tract infections in the elderly. But we do know that quinolones have a high risk for, for neuropsychiatric side effects, and the risk group is this guy. Older people with renal insufficiency. A lot of times we don't dose adjust appropriately our quinolone as people get renal insufficiency and we're giving them really high levels to get high brain levels. And the more common things are that they get paranoid, that they get hallucinations, that they get these more active delirium issues occurring with it. So I think of these two choices, I think D is the better choice unless we showed that this guy was febrile, his white count was going up and it looked like his treatment was not working. So let's talk a little bit about delirium. Delirium is confusion with altered consciousness. And that could be either more aggressive, where the person is talking a lot and showing active confusion, or they could be pulling back. They could be not answering as well. They might be less talkative, less verbose. So it could be either end of the spectrum. They have an abnormal attention span, disorganized thinking, and as I mentioned, either increased or decreased consciousness. And they can get hallucinations with this. The quinolones do a bunch of things. They, the most common is probably, you know, they can, cause, they can cause quite a bit of insomnia. They can cause nightmares, hallucinations, psychosis, pretty much anything. And they can be, you know, lots of paranoia, Lots of aggressive, aggressive behavior. How many of you have seen a, a person in the hospital on a quinolone that changed 
from the time you saw them to the next day you come in and they hate you or something. Everything's fine and dandy. You're a great doc when you work them up and they're sick and you put them on the medicine. Next thing they come in and they're like, get out of my room. You're a terrible person. Yeah, I, I've seen that a lot. I, I've seen a, a lot of this stuff that just, they also get a lot of um, disin, disinhibition. So maybe those people that were nice because their frontal lobes were keeping them from saying what they really thought about you, you get to see what they really think about you when you put them on a clonalone sometimes. So a lot of, I, I, I think I want you to be ready to pick this one up on the boards and in real life. A sudden change in their personality and especially with more aggressive uh, verbal abuse and things like that. The other thing that, that quinolones can do is just get them really hypersexual. And so you get these 90-year-olds that are hitting on you. That's not a good thing. And uh, especially I get all these, I get these complaints. I, I, this happened to a couple of my medical students where they were taking care of patients and they, they were all pretty shaken up when the 95-year-old were grabbing at them. So it's just be ready for that. Stand a little farther away from the bed when they're on a quinolone. A 78-year-old woman is admitted with a perforated duodenal ulcer. She has surgery and has moved to the intensive care unit. After removal from the ventilator, she is extremely confused. She does not know where she is or who she is. She keeps trying to get out of bed. So we have somebody who got really, really sick, had surgery, was on a ventilator. Everything's getting better in that regard. Now she's just so confused. She's trying to get out of bed, and you really can't get her oriented to anything. What would be the best way to manage this patient? Two-point restraints, four-point restraints, keep a sitter at the bedside, treatment with haloperidol, or treatment with meperidine. So which of these is going to be the best next step in this person? Good, so sitters. So... The important delirium point, and this I'm sure will be on the boards, any question that they're going to try to test this point, is try to avoid chemical or physical restraints. They don't generally make things better. So, so really avoid two four-point restraints, any of that. Not to say they never are used, and if the person absolutely is so trying to get out of bed and there's no way to get a sitter and there's no way to get some other system but that's going to accelerate the delirium. Anybody, you can just imagine, you don't know where, you can't remember what happened, but when you wake up, you're tied down. You just feel like somebody's trying to kill you, so it's just going to accelerate things. So we try to avoid restraints, and that includes chemical restraints. The idea of giving people neuroleptics being a good choice for delirium has really, really not only fallen out of favor, but has been aggressively pushed back against by the geriatric community. Um, you know, pain control is always important to think about in people with delirium. Sometimes it's, their delirium's bad because they can't really tell you they're hurting. So if you have options for pain control that are not bad for people, so narcotics, low-dose narcotics in the right setting, it may cause some delirium, but if they're in a lot of pain, they may do better. Meperidine isn't good because it, it just builds up. It's really not a good geriatric drug, so we really try to avoid Demerol, meperidine, because the Product, byproducts build up in people. So the right answer here, which you did very good on with that sort of approach of TLC to our elderly who are in distress, get somebody there to make sure they don't get out of bed. They can talk to them, hopefully in a gentle voice. Hopefully they're a nice person. The sitter is going to be being, you know, doing nice things that help calm the patient and not, not get them upset. An 84-year-old man fractures his hip. 
He is on no medicines. On day two of hospitalization, he becomes confused and is diagnosed with delirium. Blood pressure is 180 over 100. His pulse is 130, and he has tremor. Admission labs, his crit was 36, his MCV was 103, sodium 136, potassium 3.1, magnesium 0.8. So that's when he came in. He's getting more confused. He's diagnosed with delirium. He's hypertensive, tachycardic with tremor. What do you recommend for him? Haloperidol, olanzapine, chlorodiazepoxide, zolpidem, or a nitroprusside drip? So which of these is the best treatment for this guy? Okay, good. 58% of you gave this guy a long-acting benzodiazepine for what? Alcohol withdrawal, very good. And, and it gets missed in the elderly all the time um, because we don't always get much history and for some reason we don't always think our 80 and 90-year-olds are drinking heavily and, and many of them are. Um, and part of the reason is they grew up in a culture, you know, the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, the norm was not what our new safe drinking guidelines are. The norm was many people were drinking three, four, five drinks a day, and that was norm. That was societal norm. They've grown up with that, and they continue to do it, which seems to work for them until they break their hip, and then they stop, and then they come in with alcohol withdrawal. So you did a good job of picking up on the tachycardia, the hypertension, the tremor, and the labs, right? The labs were a clue to us with the increased MCV and the low potassium, low magnesium all show chronic alcohol use. So this one is not so much, this one is a targeted diagnosis for delirium. So it's not just older person in the hospital, it's older person in the hospital withdrawing. So you did good with that. So what are the things that cause delirium? Um, infection is certainly an important cause in people that are older. Medications, any medicine that works in the brain can certainly do this. So and lots and lots of medicines have been, have been implicated in, in older patients. And especially if we give them two or three new medicines, they all may do a little bit of it. And it's a combination of all the new medicines that do it. Bladder catheters. Again, if somebody's a little bit out of it and then they wake up and they got a catheter in, they really don't understand what's going on. And that accelerates delirium. Restraints are a big problem. People in the hospital don't sleep well. Decreased sleep accelerates delirium. New surroundings, as I mentioned, and as you did on this case very well, recognizing alcohol withdrawal. So I, I would not be surprised if you got an elderly patient with alcohol withdrawal case on the, on the boards, and that would be where you actually would treat them with a medicine. That's one of the few times where you would want to give a medicine to an 80-plus-year-old patient. So some of the medicines that do this, tricyclic antidepressants, antipsychotics can certainly do it, antihistamines. The American Geriatric Society hates diphenhydramine. You know, Benadryl, the old, oh, people use it as a sleeper. It's the most common over-the-counter sleeping aid. And a lot of our older patients will buy this as an over-the-counter sleeping aid and be on it. And it can cause delirium, confusion. It can cause acute urinary obstruction in older men. And that can trigger the delirium. So antihistamines are bad. Antiemetics certainly can do the same type of things as far as accelerating delirium. And some of the anti-Parkinsonian drugs can do this as well. Analgesics, narcotics are, are, are commonly affect the brain and, and can do this. 
NSAIDs have been well reported to cause confusion among all the other mayhem they can cause in older people. We all know what steroids can do when we start somebody on steroids. The older they get, the more likely they are to get confused or have trouble sleeping and then develop delirium. We gave you a quinolone case. And then sedative hypnotics certainly can do this as well. So lots and lots of drug causes. What are the things we don't want to do in somebody with delirium that will make it worse? We, want, we don't want to put them in restraints. We don't want to miss alcohol withdrawal. We don't want to give them a paradine. And we don't want to jump to medicating them. Okay, So we don't want to just say, you're, you're delirious and confused. Here's your haloperidol. I really believe that's gonna, you're, they're going to try to hook you on that. Don't go there. Very few indications for using antipsychotics in the elderly. I'm not saying we never do it, but you should have to have no other choice but to use it, at least from the pure geriatrician's mantra. And they are the guys who write, guys and gals who write these questions. So, so what about alcohol and, and, and you know, what kind of a problem is it in older people? If we look at the safe drinking guidelines, it would recommend for our elderly patients no more than seven drinks per week. So one drink a day. And that's not a big gulp glass either. That's, it's, you know, a small amount of alcohol per day is acceptable and okay. But the, many of these folks, two drinks a day is what they would consider a light day. And certainly they've done three and four their whole life. So you're going to see a lot of this. And it's a big issue when they come in the hospital and it's not their choice. Uh, they, are, they aren't planning on it like an like a orthopedic injury. What are the things you should do to help with delirium? Provide orienting stimuli, clocks, calendars, being able to see that there is an outside, that they're not, they're not, they're not uh, stuck in, internally somewhere. If they wear glasses, put their glasses back on them. I think it's disorienting if you put glasses on people who don't wear them. Same thing with hearing aids. If, put them back in, but don't put the hearing aids of somebody else in. And absolutely, the other one is put their teeth back in and definitely don't put somebody else's teeth in their mouth. Get all lines out of them as soon as possible, uh, especially IV lines. I mean, you all know this. They're always ripping their IVs out, and it's understandable. Somebody wakes up in the middle of the night, they're a little disoriented, and they've got stuff sticking out of their arms. It's like, get me free. So as soon as their IV lines can come out, that will help with their delirium. As soon as their catheter can come out, that will help with the delirium. And then there have been a bunch of studies about massage and touch and, and just sort of connecting to the outside world through human touch as being a positive thing. And that fits right in with what geriatricians want, you know, tender, loving care of our patients, not, not medicating the heck out of them. Okay, an 85-year-old woman is brought to the ED after a syncopal episode. Her caregivers report a similar episode two weeks ago, but she recovered so quickly they did not seek evaluation for her. So... This is the second episode she's had in the last couple of weeks. She's taking a meprazole, pravastatin, citalopram, albuterol, denepazil, isosorbide, and calcium. Her blood pressure is 100 over 60. Her pulse is 55. Her ECG shows bradycardia with normal intervals. What drug is most likely the cause of her syncope? Is it citalopram, pravastatin, denepazil, isosorbide, or calcium? So which of these are we going to blame as the cause for her syncope? Okay, so this is a classic board question where 
there are several things that you could come up with an argument and say this would make sense to include in my differential, but the right answer is C, which 61% of you chose. Now, individuals who take nitrates can have some lowering of their blood pressure. They're a little higher risk for orthostatic hypotension. We did not give you any information that, that proves that. We didn't, you know, there were no orthostatic blood pressures. That's a possibility. This is the second time it's happened. One thing we did give you is a relative bradycardia. Heart rate's a little slow. 55 is kind of slow. And that is really the mechanism that denepazil will cause this problem. So we give you a smoking gun there. And some of you thought about citalopram. Citalopram can prolong the QT interval, and it is recommended by the FDA. We don't go, we really don't go above 20 milligrams in our elderly patients for citalopram to prevent this. But your ECG showed normal intervals. So I think isosorbide and citalopram are good to think about, but the information in the stem moves us away from them, and denepazil is the right answer here. These drugs, cholinesterase inhibitors, have a lot of side effects, and one of them that's important is this issue of slowing the heart rate down and being associated with heart block and syncope. That relative risk for bradycardia is 1.4 for people on cholinesterase inhibitors, a hazard ratio of 1.76 for syncope if somebody's on a cholinesterase inhibitor, an increased risk for emergency department visits for bradycardia at 1.69. They have a 1.5 increased risk for getting a pacer placed if they're on, if they're on a cholinesterase inhibitor. So they do this enough and people just say, well, let's just put a pacer and that will solve everything. And then their risk for fall is higher because of syncope, and so their hip fracture rate goes up. So there's noise and information that shows that these drugs can cause some of these problems. So just being aware of it doesn't mean that we don't use these drugs. It's just the second or third time that they have a syncopal episode, that's the time. We, you know, we really should be thinking about, about getting them off these drugs. Okay, let's talk a little bit about dementia and how we're going to sort out dementia questions. Dementia is a decreased level of cognition, including memory, often with behavioral disturbances that interferes with daily function and independence. There are several different dementia syndromes. The most common is Alzheimer's disease, and that is very linear as far as age. We rarely see it under the age of the mid-50s. We do see some families where people get a little bit earlier in life, but very common before, before, say, the age of 50, and it becomes more common every year of life after that. And when you get to age 90, it's estimated at least a third of the population would meet criteria for dementia. Vascular dementia is also becomes more common with age uh, due to multi-infarct dementia. Usually those people have multiple risk factors in known vascular disease el elsewhere. Parkinson's disease with Lewy body dementia progressive supernuclear palsy, that whole family is another form of dementia. Frontal lobe dementias uh, are, are much rarer. And then even rarer, I think, are the reversal dementias. We were all taught in medical school, we got to find those reversible dementias. They exist, but they're rare. And I think it's totally fair and appropriate that we work everybody up. I mean, it's not good to be demented. And so it's appropriate that we look for anything we could change, but we don't fool ourselves into thinking we're going to find a lot of B12 deficiency. We're going to find a ton of people with normal pressure hydrocephalus in the population. That's estimated that's probably under 2 to 3% of people with dementia have a reversible cause. What 
the group that are in lumped under reversible dementias are people that their cognitive impairment is from medications, analgesics, sedatives, sort of anticholinergic crisis, people that are on three or four anticholinergic drugs may affect people to the point where they get mistaken for a true dementia. There's pseudo-dementia, excuse me, pseudo-dementia, which is depression, that people that are acutely depressed can sometimes get more forgetful, have some problems with problem solving that gets better when we treat depression. A standard practice is in our newly diagnosed dementia patient, giving them a trial of antidepressant therapy to see how much improvement they get. Maybe they have dementia and an underlying depression and they will improve. Normal pressure hydrocephalus, which is usually not presenting as the triad we learned in medical school of gait disturbance, cognitive impairment, and urinary incontinence. Remember that many demented patients are incontinent as part of their dementia. So the probability of uncovering normal pressure hydrocephalus with the combination of urinary incontinence and dementia, they, they overlap hugely just from dementia. Certainly a new gait disturbance would, would, would raise this possibility much greater. Alcohol-related dementias, there's a question on how reversible those would be, but certainly stopping the alcohol and looking for, for things like Korsakoff's uh, syndrome would be a possibility. And then pretty uncommon are the metabolic disorders, B12 deficiency, thyroid disorders, people with hepatic dysfunction, where really what you're seeing is hepatic encephalopathy as opposed to a dementia. A 76-year-old man is evaluated for memory loss. He scores 20 out of 30 on the mini-mental status exam. His workup for reversible causes of dementia is negative. He is otherwise healthy with his only medical problem being knee osteoarthritis. This guy's been really a healthy guy, not hypertensive, no known heart disease, very healthy guy other than this. And this is starting to get in the way of his functioning. What do you recommend for him? Memanotene, denepazil, 2,000 units of vitamin E, selegiline, or no therapy. So let's go ahead and see what you think here. Yeah, I think, I think the right answer here is B. Now, the cholinesterase inhibitors have a lot of side effects, and their, their therapeutic index is very narrow. That is, the benefit overall, the hassles they cause, is pretty narrow. This guy is a reasonable candidate because he's so healthy. He doesn't have a lot of other medical problems that, that are going to get exacerbated by a cholinesterase inhibitor. And he also has relatively early dementia, so... If there is a benefit of slowing the process down, he may really benefit from it. Very mild as far as, uh, as, far as the data on effectiveness, but in an otherwise healthy person with mild to moderate dementia, that would be one of those people who would probably be one of the better candidates to use the drug. Now, a very important pearl is if you're gonna, what you're going to start, you're probably going to start a cholinesterase inhibitor over memantine. That's a drug that tends to get used for more complicated dementia after the, the cholinesterase inhibitor has not worked or sometimes in combination. So if they ask you, which are you going to pick first, I think the cholinesterase inhibitor is the right answer there. Vitamin E, there was all this excitement about high-dose vitamin E being effective. The answer is no. And uh, selegiline used more as a Parkinson's drug. 
And I don't think, you know, no therapy. You certainly talk to the patient on whether they want to take a medicine. But for board's purposes, this case, I think most geriatricians would agree to give this guy a trial of medication because he's healthy with mild to moderate dementia. What else they would do is if he had a lot of trouble with it, they probably would not keep pushing it. If he started to get lots of GI problems, if he got, if he certainly, if he started to get bradycardic or had cardiac problems, issues, syncope, any of that, they would not oversell this drug. So medications work best when treating mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. It slows the progression. It doesn't generally improve cognitive function. It kind of keeps it stable for a while. That's the real best case scenario with this. Now, there may be a placebo effect, especially in, in, in mild depression where the patient really is looking for benefits. There certainly can be a placebo effect with that. Um, for mild to moderate, we're going to start with a cholinesterase inhibitor. For moderate to severe, we may add memantine. And uh, the other benefit that we may see by therapy is we might get a little bit of benefit in some of the neuropsychiatric symptoms. Some of the behavioral things may improve a little bit when we add the actual cholinesterase inhibitor. So we think about treatment not just for make their you know, memory stabilize, but maybe this is going to help us a little bit in some of the behavioral issues. A 78-year-old woman is brought in for evaluation of visual hallucinations. She describes seeing cats and cockroaches running across her floor. She was diagnosed with dementia last year after getting lost driving. Her mini-mental status exam score was 20, losing points for inability to spell world backwards, copying figures, and inability to do calculations. She has done fairly well this past year with only several episodes getting suddenly confused. She has had two falls in the last three months. Okay, so we got somebody with these visual hallucinations while she's in today, and she's seeing cats and cockroaches running across her floor that, that her family says aren't there. Um, she was diagnosed recently with dementia, and you see what her score deficits were. Done okay this last year. She's had only a few episodes of getting confused, but she has fallen twice in the last three months. What would be the most appropriate therapy for her symptoms? Dinepazil, haloperidol, risperidone, lorazepam, or cataract surgery. So which of these do you think would be the best thing to recommend for her? Okay, so the right answer here I think is A. I think the wrong answers here are B, C, and D. Okay, I think those are. I think I think that the geriatricians will go nuts on those answers, and we'll talk why. I think you know part of it. You may say, well, she's fallen a few times. If she truly does need cataract surgery, we might reduce her risk of falls. That's a really positive thing for her. The one thing is that's not probably going to affect her visual issues because in this stem is embedded enough information that she probably has Lewy body dementia. What she lost on her mini-mental stats exam is very classic for this. The fluctuating good times and bad times, the falls are probably because she has Parkinson's disease as well. And the visual hallucinations are very classic for this. So the case is one of somebody with Lewy body dementia. So the cataract surgery is not going to fix that or, or even slow that down or even give us something that's going to help with that. You could make an argument that if she needed it, it might help a little bit with falls. But I think denepazil would be, as far as a therapy to help with behavior issues here, would probably be the, the appropriate thing to do for her. So let's talk a little bit about Ludi body dementia. 
you may well get a question on this. I think this is a very easy question to ask because it's a very unique form of dementia. They get fluctuating levels of, com- of consciousness. It's not the normal slow decline we see with Alzheimer's disease where they just kind of go down, plateau down. They don't kind of have a really good day very often where they really seem to be clicking on all cylinders. They get visual spatial difficulties, and that's what she had. She had these hallucinations. Um, she, you know, 83% positive predictive value uh, hallucinations at onset. So somebody who has cognitive impairment with hallucinations, it strongly suggests this. Falls are more common in these patients because they tend to have Parkinson's disease, and Parkinson's disease is incredibly underdiagnosed. You might think, well, wouldn't we figure that out ahead of time? No. A lot of times these people, this is happening in their 80s. They've slowed down a lot. They're falling anyway. They don't move much. It's easy to miss the Parkinson's disease. Very important. I want you to remember this part. Really important. They, the parts they have trouble early on in their mini mental status exam is they can't copy the figures. They just can't do it. They have trouble with calculations. They really struggle with calculations. And for the life of them, they can't spell world backwards. Okay, so there are specific things that they have much more trouble than other things. And on a board question, once you see that, if they give you that, you're all over Lewy body dementia. The other thing I want you to remember is you can, you can really harm them, harm them with neuroleptics. Neuroleptics are going to cause a crisis with their Parkinson's disease. Okay, so these patients are going to get into a lot of trouble really quickly with neuroleptics. So in general, geriatricians hate neuroleptics because they don't work very well and they have a lot of side effects. And in a demented patient, increased mortality. All those things are not good things. But with Parkinson's disease, they might bring out a lot more symptoms suddenly. So we really don't want to give neuroleptics to our older people in general, but especially not people with Lewy body dementia. That's a group where it's really contraindicated and you don't want to do that. And that's the group that they're crying for them because they're having hallucinations. So, you know, the pressure we're going to get from the nursing staff is, can't you prescribe something? They're, they're hallucinating. So beware of this, especially on the boards. Somebody's going to set this trap to try to get you to fall in it. Don't fall in it. So in general, neuroleptics are going to unlikely be the correct answer, absolutely in somebody with Lewy body dementia, but in your demented patients, generally we don't use them, and on the boards, don't prescribe neuroleptics to demented patients. They're always going to be the wrong answer because of the increased sudden death risk with neuroleptics. In the real world, have I ever prescribed neuroleptics to older patients who are demented? Yes. Of course. I mean, sometimes you just you have such a big problem with the behavior, and if you can get a 5% or 10% behavioral improvement, that allows the patient to stay with their family. Yes, we will do it. On the boards, I think they're always going to call it the wrong answer. Okay, so that's the difference between the real world and the board questions. Okay, 83-year-old man presents to clinic to discuss his insomnia. He has problems falling asleep, usually falling asleep two hours after his wife goes to sleep. He has tried exercising in the late afternoon, reading in bed, and watching unstimulating TV at bedtime without benefit. So an older guy says he just can't sleep at night, can't fall asleep. His wife goes to bed, and he's still up for a couple hours. He's tried exercising late in the afternoon. That hadn't worked. He's tried reading in bed. He's watching really boring, unupsetting TV programs. That's not helping. What do you recommend for him? 
exercise two hours before bedtime on his exercise bike. Do not go to the bedroom until he is tired. Trial of diphenhydramine at bedtime. Trial of trazodone at bedtime. Trial of lorazepam at bedtime. Okay, good. So you stayed away from the drugs. That's great. And, and you didn't, get, and not too many of you got sort of bamboozled by that trazodone answer in there. So trazodone was popular about 10 years ago as a sleeper, a geriatric sleep. A lot of geriatricians sort of touted it a little bit. We've learned a lot more about trazodone. It has a lot of anticholinergic side effects. It isn't the safest drug. And it doesn't mean it's never prescribed for sleep in elderly patients, but it has fallen off the favored to the it's kind of in the, eh, I don't really want to give it list, but it's better than giving a benzo. But generally, it's not going to be the right answer. The geriatricians who write for this exam are not going to be saying, give them trazodone. So you, uh, you did a good job of staying out of that, that rabbit hole. Now, telling him, do not go be to bed until he is tired, how well is that going to work in the real world, right? Patients go, I love you, doc. Thanks. I didn't think of that, you know. <laughs> So, I mean, this is one of those bored things. You just want to strangle the person who wrote the question because you're like, come on, have you ever taken care of a patient? But what it does say, the point being, the other things don't work and could be harmful. And it's not bad sleep hygiene advice. It's part of a package of sleep hygiene, which is the idea that if you go to bed and lay there staring at the, at the ceiling, the likely, your likelihood of falling asleep is less than if you're doing active things or doing other things and trying to go to sleep when you're tired. It's not the best thing. Let's go through some of the things that actually work. I mean, your approach to your older person, you get a good history. The first thing is, do they have insomnia? Sometimes you just have people that their whole life, they didn't go to bed before one. They retired last year. Now they don't have to, you know, they, they, their work schedule was fine, but now their spouse saying, hey, you know, you need to get on a regular sleeping schedule. They never have. You think they're going to change now? You know, their whole life sleeping pattern is very different. So that's probably not insomnia. That's more an adjustment to a different, different structure in their life. And you find out if the patient really cares. If the spouse has all been out of shape about it and they're not, then just tell the spouse to deal with it. I mean, it's, it's, that's not insomnia. And a lot of these people get medicated and bad things happen to them. On the boards, check the med list. This is always a big, great way to write questions. Is, is all these drugs that if you get rid of them, maybe you'll help things. Steroids are a great example. Absolutely, anybody on corticosteroids, when should they take their steroids? First thing in the morning because of this insomnia problem. People that have to be on split-dose steroids is a big issue for insomnia because they're taking a dose later in the day. SSRIs, many of them are stimulating. Things like fluoxetine, sertraline, citalopram have a little stimulatory action, so early in the day, not taking at bedtime. Paroxetine's a more sedating SSRI. That might be the one that, that, that at night isn't a bad idea. Beta agonists, your patients with COPD who are just having to use it all the time, that might be part of the reason. And then we already talked about quinolones and insomnia, so there are a lot of potential things on the med list to play around with. The basic common sense sleep hygiene, don't go to bed until you're sleepy, avoid caffeine. A lot of older people, you need to reduce their fluid intake at night because a lot of them take in a lot of fluid intake and they can't fully empty their bladders, so they get up and they keep peeing all night and that becomes a big issue for them. Get, if, they, if, they're, if they got a computer or an iPhone or anything like that, they got to get rid of that for the two hours before bedtime because 
the brightness from that will wake them up and really play into their insomnia. Plus, they get disturbing emails from their grandkids. Not good. Like right before bed, it's like, you know, I'm going to flunk out of school. All that tuition money you gave me is going down the toilet. Just want to let you know. I mean, that's not going to help the guy sleep. So get them away from that right before bedtime. The two hot topics that, are, that I th- could see pop up on the, on the boards in the last five years in sleep medicine have been cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. It works very well. If you can find somebody who does it and you have a patient who's really dedicated to trying to sleep better, that works better than just about anything. Now, very important in your elderly people, they have to have the ability to be cognitive, right? So your demented patient isn't going to do well with CBT, okay? So that's not, you know, if they give you a demented patient, don't pick CBT. That's not a good idea. But, but your other pa- patients, that's a good option. The other one is the idea of sleep restriction. Sleep restriction is we just won't allow them to go to bed. Say, you got insomnia? Good. I'm never going to let you sleep again. And what you do is you just tell the patient that they, they, you know, you'll say, when do you try to go to bed? I go, you go, they say, well, I try to go to bed at 11. I go, nope, I'm not letting you go to bed till 2 a.m. today. And, you know, you're not allowed. You got to stay up till 2 a.m. no matter what. And then you just keep moving it back. So they get really tired and then they eventually get tired enough to fall asleep at a good time and it resets their clock. There's some good evidence on that. Medications, pretty much we avoid them, right? We avoid benzos. We avoid antihistamines like like diphenhydramine, trazodone's not a great option, antipsychotics are not a good option. So what do geriatricians allow them to have? Kind of lame stuff like melatonin. That's okay. You know, if you have to pick a drug, melatonin's okay for older people. There's a little bit of data on it. There's actually some studies on lavender scent helping older people fall asleep. Again, these are all tender, loving care, pat the old person on the shoulder thing. That's where you want to go, especially with sleep. So Change what you can. Don't give them medicines. 72-year-old woman reports discomfort in both her lower extremities. The discomfort is present when she is seated, occurring in both calves. It does not bother her when she is walking. She describes it as a deep ache, sometimes with an itching or pulling feeling. She has increased symptoms at nighttime when she is in bed. She has a history of diabetes and hypertension. Her meds are hydrochlorothiazide, lisinopril, and metformin. Her exam is unremarkable. So 72-year-old with Lower extremity symptoms, it occurs when she's seated, both calves, happens at night in bed, deep ache, sometimes itching and pulling feeling, affects her sleep, you see her history. Oops. Okay, what is the most appropriate test for her? Ankle brachial indices, serum potassium level, ferritin level, CPK level, or a CT scan of her Lumbar, sac- lumbar, lumbar sacral spine. Okay, good. 74% of you chose a ferritin level. What does she have? Yeah, restless leg syndrome, classic. People have some ill-defined ways of describing it. It's not always, I have restless legs. It's sometimes, I feel this creepy, itchy, pulling it's not really an ache, but it's not good. It wakes me up at night. You get these vague things. The key thing, as you know, is it's the issue that when they move, they do better. If they get up and stand and walk, it goes away. If they stand up a little bit. Another way it often presents is people say they go to a movie or they go to the symphony or something and they sit for a while, then they will feel it and they have to stand up for a little bit. 
So that's the classic history for this. And we check a ferritin level because it can be a manifestation of iron deficiency. And certainly in our older patients, we don't want to miss like a bleeding colorectal cancer or some other bleeding from the GI tract that's showing up with restless leg syndrome. The reality is 20% of people over 80 have it. So it's a super common geriatric syndrome, but we would always want to check for iron. So on a perfect board question is, you know what, you figure out it's restless leg, what's the one test you must have? It is check for iron. So as the labs return normal, ferritin of 80, renal function's normal, so everything's normal. You do some basic labs. What do we do for them? What's the most appropriate pharmacologic therapy here? Ibuprofen, pramipexol, philodipine, oxycodone, or terpiramate? Okay, good. 95% of you chose pramipexol. That's the right answer of these choices. Oxycodone works a little bit. The you know, narcotics are kind of the step three if things aren't working. Um, more recently, there's been a real push towards gabapentin as a first drug. I, I have clinically not really found it very effective in my geriatric patients, but there is more push because there's some accentuation of restless leg symptoms, symptoms in people who've been on pramipexol and the dopaminergic drugs over time. So I think you're going to see, you know, I don't think they're going to ask you choose gabapentin versus pramipexol. It's going to be, do you recognize it's restless legs and what would you use? But you're going to hear more and more of a, of a move towards trying, trying drugs like gabapentin as first line for restless legs, much more so than we heard a decade ago. So it's common in people over 80. It's symptoms at rest, gets better with movement. Always check for iron deficiency the first time somebody presents with restless legs. Stretching maybe helps a little bit. Dopaminergic agents, gabapentin. Iron's quite good for people that are iron deficient. It's actually, you can avoid having to give pharmacologic treatment if you diagnose iron deficiency, fix the problem, give them, give them, give their iron back. 83-year-old woman comes to the clinic with concerns about worsening dizziness. She's had an increase in disequilibrium recently, including a recent fall. She has no history of coronary disease or seizure disorder. Her symptoms begin when she stands up and starts to walk. They are improved when she stops for a minute and touches the wall. So if she just stands by the wall and touches it, her dizziness, that feeling of, of disequilibrium goes away. She's taking sertraline, nizatidine, estrogen, and calcium. So we got an 83-year-old dizzy. She describes it as disequilibrium, no major medical problems. It gets bad when she stands up and starts to walk. It gets better when she puts her hand on the wall. And she's on sertraline, nizatidine, estrogen, and calcium. What is the most likely diagnosis? Benign positional vertigo, vestibular neuronitis, orthostatic hypotension, panic attacks, or multiple sensory deficits. So which of these makes the most sense as the cause for her symptoms? Okay, so this is a little harder. So the right answer here is multiple sensory deficits. It's pretty common in older people because they get neuropathy, they have some vision problems, they have a little trouble with hearing, and they have orthopedic issues. When you start to add all those up, they don't always know where they are. They can't feel exactly their position. 
Whereas we count on all of those things to give us perfect position sense. So they feel a little insecure walking. They will describe it as disequilibrium. They may describe it as the feeling of walking on a boat or something like that where they just don't feel right. And they often describe it as dizziness. Now, going through these other choices, BPV, we know it isn't, right? Because she doesn't have vertigo. So vertigo on the boards and in real life, you're going to get a description that the world's spinning. You're not going to get dizziness or disequilibrium. You're going to get spinning. Also, BPV lasts for a very short period of time. Another popular choice was orthostatic hypotension. Orthostatic hypotension is certainly something you are concerned about when people stand up, and she did stand up, and it, it happens, but she was improved by putting her hand against the wall. Remaining standing isn't going to quickly fix your problem. Hand against the wall may keep you from falling flat on your face because you can just sort of lean against the wall maybe, but it doesn't fix the problem like it did with her. In people with multiple sensory deficits, when they use their hands, their nerves are good in their hands, it gives them another anchoring point, and they now know where they are, and their disequilibrium goes away when they use their hands. They can have their hand on their grandson, they could use a walker, they could use a cane. Whatever they do, it helps the problem. So the fact that was helped by that really pushes us to choice E. Vestibular neuronitis is constant vertigo, so we can eliminate that because we weren't told vertigo. So when we look at dizziness, it, our most important first step is divided into the different groups that cause dizziness. Vertigo is the world spinning or you spinning around the world. Presyncope is I almost pass out. I feel that things like star, I see stars, I feel kind of lightheaded, and I'm just about ready to pass out. Disequilibrium is what this patient had, which was I just feel like I'm not, I'm not really sure exactly that I'm steady on my feet, and I'm, I'm always worried about falling. I just don't feel right. And then my favorite one is ill-defined lightheadedness, which is exactly what it says. They can't really explain it. They go, I'm dizzy. And you go, well, tell me about it. They go, well, you know, I'm just lightheaded. Well, what do you mean by lightheaded? Well, you know, feels like there's air in my head. You know, they, you get all these weird descriptions that you're trying to, is it vertigo? No. Is it is it that they're about ready to pass out? No, it's not really that. Is it that they're not steady? No, it's not really that. It's just, I just don't feel right. So that's actually a category in and of itself. And it's very strongly tied to panic disorder and some psych, you know, generalized anxiety and, and issues like that are strongly tied to panic disorder. So it actually links to, to different disease entities that we can treat. So we talked about this. It's decreased vision decreased hearing, orthopedic problems, all of it adds up to I'm not sure where I am. And the way to handle this one is give them a walker, give them a cane, give them a grandson, granddaughter, whatever you want to, to have somebody to hold on to them and then they do better. We talked about what causes this one. Treatment for these things can help this one. This one can definitely be helped like people on SSRIs with panic disorder will find that they feel better with this. So that, this one is pretty hopeful there. A 66-year-old man presents for a routine clinic visit with symptoms of dizziness. He states episodes are particularly common at night when he rolls over in bed. They last 15 to 30 seconds and then resolve. The sensation is that of the room spinning around him. The symptoms have been occurring for the last three weeks. So he feels things spin around him for 15 to 30 seconds and then it goes away. 
What is the most appropriate treatment for this guy? Meclizine, prednisone, diazepam, epley maneuver, or hydrochlorothiazide? So which of these is the best thing we can do for him? Good, epley maneuver. This is BPPV. And this is extremely helpful. It may cure it. It probably has over a 50% cure rate on this. And we didn't have to do much. You can either do it yourself in your office. And if you don't, you know, if you, you know, you can look at the YouTube video if you've not done it before and then do it. Or if you're really in a hurry, you can, almost all physical therapists will do the Epley maneuver for you now. So you can send them physical therapy and they will work with them on this and do it. So very effective. And medicines don't help especially bad is meclizine. Meclizine will make them tired. It might make them a little more confused. And the problem is by the time, you know, BPBV is, it only lasts for 15, 30 seconds. They take the meclizine, they're not getting it anymore. And to prevent it, they would need to take the meclizine all the time. And that's a pretty potent antihistamine, has all the antihistamine side effects. Really not much benefit for a lot of side effects. So generally it's not used for BPPV. So the Epley maneuver is pretty good. Uh, in a nice study, resolution at 10 days, 50% for Epley versus 17% for a sham maneuver. And we generally don't give drugs. So the two things you can do is Epley maneuver or what are called accommodation exercises. And that's anything they can do to make themselves really dizzy. So say, whatever it takes to make it happen, just keep doing that. Now that's not real reassuring to patients. They think you're crazy. But the good thing that happens there is their brain gets used to it and they eventually stop having the same reaction. The epley probably is repositioning the otolith that's gotten out of, the, out, of the, out of the canal and it probably gets it back in the right place. The repositioning might do, the, the uh, accommodation exercises might do that or it might just confuse the brain. But that's another option. They can, if, it, if it's like when they bend over, it happens. Say, I want you to do recurrent bending over and do that for about five minutes a day, and let's just see if we can get you used to it, and this will go away. So those are the things that work, not drugs. 72-year-old man presents for evaluation of dizziness. He reports acute onset of dizziness occurring yesterday. The symptoms have been persistent and bothersome to the point of his not leaving his house. He reports feeling like his head is spinning around. On exam, he has vertical nystagmus. A hallpike dix maneuver increases the vertigo. The vertigo persists when the maneuver is repeated. So we got a 72-year-old who said, God, you know, I, I suddenly had this dizziness, been persistent to the point he can't leave his house. He feels like his head is spinning around. So he tells you more of a vertiginous symptom. And you look at him and you kind of are surprised. You see vertical nystagmus, which you don't see very often. You do a Dick's Hallpike maneuver and it makes it worse. So it doesn't make it less. It doesn't, you know, you do it a couple of times. You get the medical students so you can show them and it's still there. And then you get the resident and show them and it's still there. And he's getting pretty tired of getting worse with all this stuff. So my question for you is, what is the most likely cause of this 72-year-old man's vertigo? Is it orthostatic hypotension, vestibular neuronitis, benign positional vertigo, acoustic neuroma, or brainstem ischemia? Which of these is most likely? Okay, so you liked vestibular neuronitis and brainstem ischemia were the two most popular. 
And so he does have vertigo. So those orthostatic hypotension doesn't cause vertigo. BPPV wouldn't last. And also BPPV would get better if you do the Hallpike Dicks multiple times. It, you accommodate. So about the third time, it's not going to happen. So that would be not correct for that reason. An acoustic neuroma, how acute this came on, just doesn't fit that very well. I, 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 would, I would want something more to buy acoustic neuroma. So what I think the right answer here is brainstem ischemia. An older patient, and the most important thing in this case is the vertical nystagmus. Vestibular neuronitis does not cause vertical nystagmus. You can get horizontal nystagmus with the Hallpike Dix maneuver with that and potentially with uh, BPPV, but you're not going to get vertical nystagmus. Vertical nystagmus really tracks to a central cause. So any case where they give you vertical nystagmus, you're looking for brainstem ischemia in a, in a dizzy case, okay? Also, he's older. It's actually in a patient population that could have atherosclerotic disease and could have had a small stroke that's the cause of this. So what do we do to sort out vertigo? Vertical nystagmus suggests a central cause like this gentleman had. If you repeat the Hallpike dicks, decreases the symptoms and fatigability is present, which suggests the patient has BPPV. And most patients who have this central vertigo are older with atherosclerosis. They may have other brainstem symptoms or cerebellar symptoms. So they may have dysarthria and vertigo, diplopia and vertigo, or they might have motor symptoms in vertigo. Certainly if they have other neurologic symptoms with their vertigo, I would strongly suspect that this is a brainstem stroke as opposed to a peripheral cause. So just to reiterate, benign positional vertigo, usually 15 to 30 seconds with positional changes then goes away. Vestibular neuronitis, sudden severe vertigo times days. This is not an uncommon thing in 30 to 40 year olds. You get Younger patients who suddenly get vertigo, they're throwing up when they're trying to walk through it, they're miserable, they want to lay around, then it goes away. So that's usually due to a viral labyrinthitis. Meniere's. Meniere's can cause vertigo. There's usually associated symptoms with it. It might only be earfulness and vertigo. It might be vertigo and tinnitus. It might be vertigo, tinnitus, and hearing loss. And then we talked about central vertigo. A 76-year-old man is seen for hypertension. He has had six outside blood pressure readings, 160 over, 166 over 80, 160 over 80, 156 over 78, 180 over 77, 174 over 60, and 178 over 66. He has a history of GERD, depression, and gout. So we got a 76-year-old hypertensive patient. He brings in all these elevated blood pressure readings with most of them over 160. He has GERD, depression, and gout. What would you recommend for him? No drug treatment, hydrochlorothiazide, atenolol, amlodipine, or clonidine. So which of these are you going to give him? Good. 75% of you gave him amlodipine. That's the right answer. So... We don't give him clonidine because he's old. We don't give clonidine much to anybody. And geriatricians despise this drug because it makes people really sedentary. It really makes them sleepy, a bit confused. It's, you'd never give that to a geriatric patient. You would find anything else but. A lot of you liked hydrochlorothiazide, but those of you who didn't choose it, you know, we, we use hydrochlorothiazide a lot as a first-line drug for hypertension. It works okay. Why didn't you choose it? Gout. Right? So one thing, I, 
if, if I don't teach you anything else before you go in for boards, the most important thing is when you find two equally reasonable options and you start to get frustrated going, this is a style question. You know, I, you know, I always just like, no, it isn't. It's a contraindication question. I promise you, one of those has a contraindication. So if they're two equally good options, go back to the stem and see why one of those drugs that's a good option that you're wrestling with is contraindicated. And we would not give hydrochlorothiazide to a person with gout because it will trigger their gout. No treatment, I don't think that's right here in a guy who's persistently over 160. Even the more loose JNC8 would say, treat somebody over 160. And atenolol, everybody hates atenolol, okay? Just, just don't, don't give atenolol, it's hated. Okay, in the last 10 years, multiple editorials doesn't have any evidence for benefit for cerebrovascular prevention, cardiac prevention, mortality prevention, anything. So atenolol isn't popular. So beta blockers in general, not so good for hypertension. Atenolol specifically is the bad actor. So that will never be the right answer. Okay, so what do we do in our older people and how do we address hypertension treatment for them? Um, we definitely treat systolics over 160. JNC recommends over 150, over 90. We don't, we don't use beta blockers. They're not as effective as other agents. It doesn't mean we don't give beta blockers to older patients if we have other reasons. You know, post-MI, we might use a beta blocker. You might use a beta blocker for incapacitating essential tremor, sure. But as far as blood pressure meds, not, not so much. Um, we don't want to give our older people clonidine, and we don't use it much anyway. And our preferred drugs are low-dose diuretics. Chlorothaladone is probably a better antihypertensive drug than hydrochlorothiazide. It has a longer half-life. And a head-to-head trial came out six months ago. It was better. So I think that's our first choice. And then the dihydropyridines and ACE inhibitors are other good choices. So in an older person, I like things like dihydropyridines here because I don't have to worry about messing up their metabolic stuff. And remember, ACE inhibitors, you've got to make sure their renal function's okay. They're not on another hyperkalemic-causing drug. But those are the three that are generally used in our older patients with systolic hypertension. 68-year-old man with hypertension and diabetes presents with increasing dyspnea. He's been having problems with dyspnea when sleeping recumbent for the last three weeks. On exam, he has rails and an S3. Chest x-ray shows pleural effusions and curly B lines. His BNP is 790. BUN a 20, creatinine 1.3, potassium a 3.9. He's on glipizide, metformin, and enalapril. What medication will offer possible mortality benefit in him? Furosemide, digoxin, long-acting nitroglycerin, spironolactone, or hydrochlorothiazide. So which of these in this guy might offer mortality benefit? Okay, so 91% gave spironolactone, that's right. In the RAIL study, this showed a mortality benefit. The, the caveats are older people who are on an ACE inhibitor, spironolactone can cause hyperkalemia. And in the RAIL study, they checked potassium so frequently several times a week. So they didn't, get it, they didn't kill anybody because of hyperkalemia because they had study nurses living under the patient's bed. So nothing bad happened to them. Interestingly, a study came out three years after the publication of the RAIL study to show a 500% increase in hospitalizations in the U.S. for hyperkalemia after the publication of the RAIL study. So 
Clearly, there are a group of patients that we can get into trouble by giving spironolactone, but in the right patient who's got reasonable potassium balance, that's the subgroup that would benefit with a mortality benefit with spironolactone, so that's good. That's, the other ones can help them feel a little better, but won't help mortality. So the drugs that affect mortality and heart failure, beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, spironolactone, and in some groups, hydralazine plus nitrates. We never use that anymore because we use the first three as our basic bread and butter mortality drugs for heart failure. An 88-year-old woman has been having frequent episodes of fecal incontinence over the last week. She has had a small amount of liquid seepage several times a day. She has also had abdominal pain. I'm going to show you abdominal film in a minute. But So 88-year-old woman with fecal incontinence, that's why she's coming in. Some liquid seepage several times a day has also had abdominal pain. Here's her abdominal film. What is the most appropriate treatment for her, for her main concern, which is her fecal incontinence? Loperamide, one tablet a day. Diphenoxalate, atropine, one tablet a day. Fecal disimpaction, amoxicillin, clavulinate, or lactulose twice a day. So what would we give her? Okay, good. So uh, you saw this, the incredible amount of stool that was on that x-ray. And this is not an uncommon cause for some of our older people who have fecal incontinence. It's, in, it's really common after the age of 80. And if you look at nursing home patients, up to 50% have fecal incontinence. Some of the, a lot of that's because they have dementia. A lot of people have advanced dementia and fecal incontinence is super common with that. But as people get older, they get a lot more constipation and when they get fecal impactions, they will, they will loosen the lower esophageal sphincter because of hard stool in the rectal vault, and that will allow a little bit of liquid around it. So sometimes it seems kind of counterintuitive to address constipation when they're actually having fecal incontinence. But the right thing here is disimpact them and then get them on a reasonable bowel program, and that will probably help, help this patient a lot. So fecal incontinence, uh, minor fecal incontinence, just partial soiling of undergarments. Major is involuntary excretion of feces. 15% of those over 70 and up to 70% of nursing homes. This is super common. What it took me a while to learn is when I was a resident, I was always taught that fecal incontinence was a medical emergency. Not, not just because it's horribly, horribly embarrassing and terrible in that regard, but it was always like, when somebody gets fecal incontinence, they have a tumor on their spine, you know? And the reality is, yes, with a young person who gets fecal incontinence, it's probably some neurologic nightmare. But older people, this happens. And it, you do more and more geriatrics, it becomes such a common, common thing. Um, it's very, very common, especially in women who have had multiple childbirth, that as they get older, they might have some fecal incontinence. We talked about the constipation issue with fecal incontinence. Um, so... Get them disimpacted. Your older patients that are demented, there is not a great way to stop this. Uh, but for your people who, are, who do not have cognitive impairment, we often can find something to help them. And I think the first step is a good history and see if they have fecal impaction. An 84-year-old man is brought to the physician by his daughter for evaluation of weight loss. He has lost 15 pounds over the last six months. His weight loss has declined from 200 pounds to 185. He also has had two falls during those six months. He's got a history of coronary disease, hypertension, and gout. 
He's on atorvastatin, aspirin, and lisinopril. His blood pressure is 130 over 70. His pulse is 78. His BMI is 20. So he's losing weight, um, dropped 15 pounds. He's fallen a couple of times. You see that he's got, high, he's got mostly uh, cardiac issues with hypertension, coronary disease, also got gout. He's on three medications. Blood pressure is fine. Pulse is fine. BMI is 20. What is the most likely cause for his weight loss? Depression, hyperthyroidism, malignancy, diabetes, or malabsorption? So in this guy, just giving you the history I have given you, what do you think the most likely cause for his weight loss is? Hey, good. 79% of you want right for depression? Absolutely correct. That is the number one cause of weight loss in the elderly when you look at unintentional weight loss. They are all worried they have cancer. Okay, so the family is worried about cancer. The patient's worried about cancer. Everybody's worried about cancer, but it's not the most likely. So the most likely here is depression, and definitely evaluating them for depression would be the first and most important step. If you look at weight loss in the elderly, it's the six Ds. It's depression, it's dentition, dysgeusia, diarrhea, dysphagia, GI tract, okay? A bunch of Ds in the GI tract. If somebody has lost their teeth or if they have pain with chewing, they don't eat as much. If they can't taste things very well, this is so common as people get older, their sense of smell goes away. You guys know that sense of smell goes away before Parkinson's disease. It can be an early warning sign of Parkinson's disease. It may also be an early warning signs of developing dementia, Anyway, when that happens, things don't taste as good. People don't eat as much. They can have malabsorption that might make them, make them lose weight. And they, a lot of older people have presbyesophagus. They can't swallow food very well, so they don't eat fast. They don't eat as much. They're worried about that. All these things lead to weight loss. So that's important. Disease, that's the best way we could turn cancer into a D. So that's the number three cause. So it's not one, it's not two, it's number three. Drugs, a whole bunch of drugs that, that uh, might decrease appetite. Metformin is one that might decrease somebody's appetite. A lot of the drugs can make them more constipated, and that throws them off their A game so they don't want to eat. Dementia, appetite drops. A lot of patients with dementia, if you just sit there while they, and feed them, they'll eat. It's just that they're not going to spontaneously eat. And then 25% we don't know. So remember that depression is number one. That's a favorite question, which is getting people to bite on it. Must be cancer because everybody's freaking on cancer. No, depression's number one, and that needs to be the first thing we look at. An elderly nursing home patient has lost 15 pounds in the last six months. Complete evaluation shows the cause of his weight loss is depression. So you have done a good history and exam, and you are certain it's depression. What would be the most appropriate treatment for him? Bupropion, buspirone, Fluoxetine, mirtazapine, or methylphenidate. Which of these is the best treatment for this guy? Okay, good. Mirtazapine. Mirtazapine is the geriatrician's favorite antidepressant for the guy, the guy or the woman who's losing weight. Because it can help people gain weight, it can help appetite a little bit, and surprisingly, it's much better tolerated in the very old than it is in middle-aged folks. 
And especially in nursing homes, when people are losing weight, this is a very popular medicine, and it, it has the benefit of not only treating the depression, but being able to work fast and help with weight gain. Bupropion, harder to use in people that are older, the, you know, that uh, we worry a lot about seizures, people that have ever seized before or have old seizure foci, foci, people who have had multiple strokes, might be a problem. Fluoxetine. We use a lot of SSRIs successfully in our patients. Fluoxetine may lead to weight loss in this population, may actually decrease the appetite a little bit. Yes, we want to treat the depression. It may help longer term, but mirtazapine will get right at weight loss and depression. So I think that's the right answer here. So let's look at what are the antidepressants that help with weight gain. In this case, we want to help with weight gain. MAO inhibitors... Very good at that, but we're too terrified to use them as internists, and for good reason. So we rarely use those. Tricyclics, we don't want to use those in the elderly, but they can lead to weight gain. Paroxetine, of the SSRIs, it's the most likely to use, lead to weight gain. And then mirtazapine works very, very well. Okay, let's move on to geriatric urology. So let's just go through what we have to think about with normal continence. What leads to what, 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 what has to be functioning to have somebody be continent? And what are the problems when people are incontinent? So normal micturation requires the brain to work. In other words, when, when the message comes, I got to pee, you go, I better get out of here. I'm going to wet myself. I'm going to go to the bathroom instead of, I'm just so fascinated by listening to Dr. Powell. I just can't leave here. I'm just going to stay here. No, you take off and pee. So the brain, and this is a big issue with dementia. If those, if those uh, pathways are gone, people will just pee themselves because they don't have that cognitive place to say, I gotta, I gotta go uh, take care of myself. Then you also need to have sacral nerve function. That if there's a problem with the sacral nerves, the messages get all messed up and people will pee. And then bladder function has to be normal. That if the bladder goes into spasm, it will cause people to have involuntary incontinence. Or if the bladder is too expanded, then it can't do its normal thing. So you have three levels. Does the brain work? Do the nerves to the bladder work? And does the bladder itself work normally? If any one of those is out, incontinence will ensue. So as we think through the why behind and how we treat, we have to use the history to drive us in those areas. So... The main forms we see are urgent continence, which is always detrust or overactivity. So it's the spasming of the muscles that squeezes out urine before somebody can get to the bathroom. And the normal history there is, I know I got to go, and if I delay at all, I'm not going to make it. Because as the bladder gets distended, the detrusor muscles are twitchy, and they will squeeze enough to make people pour urine out inappropriately. Stress incontinence. Stress incontinence is when there is some problem with the mechanics and when people cough, sneeze, stand up, jump up and down, laugh, anything that increases pressure, they cannot overcome it with their sphincter and urine will come out. And then there's overflow incontinence, which is when there is outlet obstruction, the bladder gets very, very big and eventually people can't empty their bladder well enough, it gets overfilled and then it will dribble out. Okay, 79-year-old woman reports with symptoms of urinary incontinence on a daily basis. She is devoid many times during the day, yet leaks urine frequently before she can get to the bathroom. She has not had hematuria or dysuria. She's on omeprazole, sertraline, and enalapril. Her UA is normal. 
What is the most likely cause of her incontinence? Detress her overactivity, sphincter dysfunction, distress her, excuse me, detress her underactivity, sphincter dysfunction, detress her overactivity, side effect of her sertraline or a side effect of her enalapril. Okay, good. Detressor overactivity. It's not underactivity. It's kind of a spasming of the detressor muscles. So we do not want detressor overactivity. So all advice and, and targeting for treatment for her will go around dealing with the overactive bladder, the detressor overactivity. So looking, we always look for reversible causes, and that's helpful. And I love this mnemonic drip because I can remember it. So the D is drugs. So people that are incontinent that are on diuretics, that's probably not the best thing. And if we can manipulate away from that, that's good. Um, Some anticholinergic drugs can make people have overflow incontinence. So we got to be careful with that. When I was a a resident, I was working in the emergency department, and this woman came in with a... uh, came in because she had a little bit of abdominal pain, but they also said that she was having incontinence. And you know, I thought, that's kind of an odd thing to bring somebody to the ER for, incontinence. And so, you know, she came from a psychiatric facility and so got a urine sample from her, looked at that, and that looked okay. And we're not sure what was going on. And, and she said she had abdominal pain. So being a typical, typical internist, I'd had to get a test. So I got an abdominal ultrasound and I found about a eight liter bladder eight liter, I mean, this thing was huge. It was this huge thing, her abdominal pain. She was an obese lady, so I couldn't really, I couldn't find it probably because I didn't do a good physical exam. But this was a massive thing, and she was peeing off the top of an eight liter bladder. And then I went back to the medalist, and she was on four different anticholinergic drugs. She was from our psych facility, and every drug she was on had massive anticholinergic effects and had probably been going on for years. So the point there being, you can get terrible overflow incontinence from anticholinergic drugs, and sometimes you don't suspect the cause because we always think that somebody who's got so much anticholinergic, their problem is they just can't pee. But some people with big expanded bladders will pee off the top and we can miss it. Restricted mobility. You have people who just can't get to the bathroom in time. The eye and drip is infection. So you have individuals who have a urinary tract infection they can't get there in time. And then pee is polyuric states. Patients who have diabetes and are polyuric, people with heart failure who are, who are polyuric because of uh, the medications they're on. We talked about urgent incontinence is not being able to get to the restroom in time. They tend to have small volume voiding. So even though they go, they don't go a lot. Stress incontinence is, when, I think the most important one is people who say, when I stand up, that's when I pee coughing, sneezing, anything to increase intra-abdominal pressure. Overflow incontinence, we usually learn that more from risk factors. Men with very large prostates, individuals who have had long-term diabetes. I mentioned uh, you know, individuals who have been on multiple psych meds, um, people who have known neuropathy, multiple sclerosis patients are a good example where you'll see this. Okay, a 76-year-old woman is evaluated for urinary incontinence, six-year history of incontinence occurring when she laughs, coughs, or sneezes. Recently, she had incontinence with standing. UA is normal, BUN, creatinine are okay, glucose is 111. What would you recommend for her? Begin oxybutynin 2.5 p 
POBID, begin doxazin, then two milligrams BID, recommend Kegel exercises, or begin amipramine 25 QHS. Okay, good. You know that for people with, with uh, stress incontinence, the best thing one can do are Kegel exercises. Um, the biggest problem with Kegel exercises are not that they don't have some efficacy, it's that a lot of patients don't do them right and they're not taught well on them or they just have difficulty really understanding what they can do. And so one of the things that's been found in the last few years has been the use of pelvic floor physical therapists for, you know, I think it's always reasonable to have the person try Kegels, giving them an instruction sheet, have them work on it, but not to give up on Kegels when the person comes back and says, I haven't noticed any improvement, then thinking about the possibility of referring to, with, to a pelvic floor physical therapist to do uh, a better training for their Kegels and get a little closer follow-up for that. So for stress incontinence, Kegels, urging continence, we use oxybutynin and... Uh, and that category of medications is our first choice. Some bladder training, that is going to the bathroom and keeping your volumes down, but you don't want to get them going every half hour because then they train their bladder to not handle any urine. They have to be able to, now every two hours, two and a half hours is a reasonable bladder training for them to keep their bladder on the smaller side, but not so small that, that they can't handle any urine. Because remember, this one is the trusser overactivity, and if you keep asking very little of the bladder, they're going to have more and more trouble uh, getting from point A to point B without incontinence. And then overflow incontinence, figure out what the problem is. If they have a huge prostate, they might have that need to be treated with medications or surgery. Medications that create it, we try to deal with that. It is hard for overflow incontinence for individuals with bad neuropathic problems causing that, and some of those people end up getting, getting catheters. A 76-year-old man presents for evaluation of urinary frequency and decreased urinary stream. Symptoms have been present for three years but have worsened in the last six months. He is now getting up four times at night to urinate. On exam, his prostate is 3-plus enlarged without nodularity. His PSA is 3 so we got a 76-year-old guy who's just not sleeping well because he gets up multiple times at night to urinate. Big, big prostate, no nodularity. He has a PSA of 3. What do you recommend for him? Terazosin, finasteride, a TERP, prostate ultrasound, or a prostate biopsy? Okay, I, th I agree. I think you want to go alpha blocker for symptoms first. So terazosin would be the first thing I'd try. This person has a very large prostate. He may be somebody who's a candidate for finasteride or another drug of its ilk. Those help people with preventing them ending up in the ER with acute urinary obstruction. They work much better for that than an than a, than a alpha blocker does. But alpha blockers work rapidly within a week Patients are starting to get some benefit where the effect of finasteride takes three or four months to get any benefit on urinary frequency. So we tend to go with alpha blockers up front for symptoms, very large prostates. We may add finasteride. 
I don't think I'd want to start with operating on this guy, and, and, and you folks were not, not keen on that either. So for BPH therapy, first line are alpha blockers. Um, Tamsulosin is an alpha 1A blocker. The other two lower blood pressure a bit, so dizziness is a big of a bit of a problem. If you want to lower blood pressure because you need to, those, those two drugs are helpful. They tend to be a little cheaper, and on more formularies, uh, the cost of the generic tamsulosin went up quite a bit a few years ago, so sometimes patients will give you pushback on that. Second-line agent, very big prostates probably benefit from finasteride, and when you try to medically manage them and they're having a lot of trouble, then I think considering surgical approaches are reasonable. One pearl, I don't think this will be on boards, but I think it's a clinically huge beneficial pearl for you. When patients say that, they're, you know, when you get these, these people coming saying, I get up four or five times a night to pee, and you get a guy, you know, older guy, we're always figuring it's got to be the prostate. Ask them if they get up to pee, if they pee a lot during the day. They go, no, I don't pee much during the day. So that is, that is at odds with it just being a big prostate, that they get up four times at night and they get up, they go to the bathroom every five, six hours during the day. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And the one diagnosis that, that gets horribly underdiagnosed when people's main symptom is, I'm tired because I pee all night, is missing sleep apnea. Because people with sleep apnea tend to pee more at night because they wake up from their sleep apnea and go, huh, I'm awake, I must need to pee. So they'll go, pee. I mean... Most people can pee on command, right? And if they're like, okay, and that's what it is. So they tell you, I'm not sleeping well because I'm getting up to pee because they think it's their bladder waking up where it's really the sleep apnea. So I, I, I can't tell you how helpful that's been to me clinically. Um, I had one guy I was seeing forever for getting up seven to eight times a night to pee. And he went to a urologist and they removed his prostate and that didn't help. And this went on forever. And I finally stumbled on this. Got a sleep study, and the guy's apnea hypopnea index was 88. His low sat was 66. Got him treated, and the guy was like peeing once a night. It was like, um, it was amazing. So I felt horrible that it took me 15 years to figure that out. So you guys will do much better than me. So the alpha blockers, how we figure them, they're our best short-term therapy. Long-term therapy in people with big prostates, the finasteride uh, Finasteride plus alpha blocker works better for symptoms than a finasteride alone, but the finasteride is the important part at keeping them out of the ER for acute urinary retention. Tamsulosin, the least side effects of the group. Prazosin, the greatest side effects. I don't think there's any role for prazosin unless you're also trying to treat PTSD and, and BPH, maybe, but uh, doxazosin and terazosin are both cheap, but you've got to watch. They have a little bit more uh, orthostatic hypotension. Okay, an 84-year-old man presents with hematuria. He had an episode last week, but has had hematuria for the past four days. Has had some hesitancy frequency in nocturia for several years. He's on aspirin, multivitamin, and omeprazole. A UA shows that he's got red cells, no white cells. Cystoscopy's done, no bladder malignancy. CT scan of the abdomen shows normal kidneys. So we did the work up here looking for something really bad with his hematuria. And this guy... Uh, this guy's been having it several times. 84-year-old guy. What do you recommend to help stop future hematuria in this guy? Tamsulosin, weekly dose of norfloxacin, finasteride, pyridium, or stop his aspirin?
you guys are doing so well on my questions, I have to throw something really hard at you. Okay, so the right answer here, you guys did pretty good actually. 39% of you chose finasteride here. So this person has BPH with hematuria, and this is not an uncommon thing in people with very severe BPH. They will get recurrent hematuria, and it can be very severe. It can be crit-dropping type hematuria, very bothersome and potentially dangerous for the patient, and finasteride is a miracle drug for this. Maybe they get to the point where they need their prostate removed, but finasteride works really, really, really well for this. This is a meta-analysis of multiple small studies for using finasteride for treatment of BPH-associated hematuria. The use of finasteride resulted in decreased hematuria with an odds ratio of 0.11 and incredible confidence intervals, 06 to 0.21 over 12 months. So this really, really helped. And they found that these, they did another study looking at uh, what happens if you give people this and they get decreased number of small vessels around the urethra, which are what usually are bleeding with this. So this is a really great thing to keep in your toolkit for people who, once you've proven it's not terrible hematuria and you know it's from their BPH, finasteride is a well indicated for this. So what is finasteride good for? It's marginal for the symptoms of BPH. It will decrease the risk of acute urinary retention and it's great for BPH-related hematuria. Okay, let's move on and talk about erectile dysfunction. Um, vascular causes diabetes, peripheral vascular disease, neurogenic causes also diabetes, peripheral neuropathy, hypogonadism, very important pearl. Individuals with erectile dysfunction due to hypogonadism, they should have low libido as well. That's the key question to ask. And for boards purposes, for questions on boards, if you get a history of, you know, they give you a history, the person's libido is totally normal. I don't think that, uh, that, that low testosterone is going to be the answer and replacing testosterone will be the answer. Medications, yes, medications commonly can do this. Beta blockers, diuretics are probably the most common. But the most important are that all these things are part and parcel to it. The most common is probably psychogenic. And uh, a little bit of, of each of, of the first few categories, but then people have more trouble when they have had lack of success in the past, and it sets up for future problems. It may be partner-specific as well, which also suggests it be psychogenic. And you know the whole new movement towards much earlier treatment with medications helps a lot with the psychogenic piece. A lot of people do better when they just have a prescription. Even if they don't use it, they know they can use it. So I think that's really the important thing. And we've really gotten away from working up erectile dysfunction. 20 years ago, we used to give these people nocturnal penaltomescence machines to see if they actually had nocturnal erections to see if it was, if it was psychogenic or if it was because of you know, bad vascular disease. Those just almost never get get ordered anymore because we, we really think treatment is the main way to go. 67-year-old man presents for treatment of erectile dysfunction. He has had problems sustaining erections for the past year. He has a normal libido. He's on pravastatin, omeprazole, isocerbide, mononitrate, lisinopril, and aspirin. What would you recommend for him? Interurethral prostadil, sildenafil, testosterone patch, or referral for a penile implant. So which are you going to recommend?
Okay, beware the easy question, because it's not easy. Very good. I could kind of tell, there's a group of you that kind of slowed down. You went back and said, this might be a contraindication question, because there are several treatments here. Or you were really wise. I wish I'd been this wise back in the day when I had to take a lot of tests. When something seems too good to be true, always go back to the stem and convince... I mean, everybody gives a phosphodiesterase inhibitor for treatment of erectile dysfunction. So if that just is like, if it's so simple, then somebody's trying to screw you with having a contraindication. And so this person was on nitrates. We all know that's contraindication. So it was just jump into that. So super easy question, go back to the stem. Or if, you, if you're troubled with a couple of answers that are both therapy, go back to the stem and find the contraindication. So we don't use much of intraurethral prostadil because it's expensive. And if you give a choice of, do you want to swallow a pill or do you want to put something that's kind of painful, might make you have some bleeding afterwards and really isn't great in the moment, down your urethra, what do you want to do? The patients are all going to say, give me the pill. So this is really, its use is limited to people who cannot use phosphodiesterase inhibitors. And this is a guy who can't use a phosphodiesterase inhibitor as long as he's on isosorbide. So the phosphodiesterase inhibitors, you are aware of uh, the contraindication with the most important uh, thing is nitrates, either short-acting or long-acting nitrates, both are contraindicated with it. Um, other therapies which are not very popular are penile injections, well, prostadil or papaverine. There is the intraurethral device, which is not quite as bad as the penile injection. The vacuum devices can work, but they are not very popular because People have to really work at it for a while, and you know, it's it's usually a turnoff when the person brings that to the bar with them. So that's those aren't really popular. And then the penile implants have some risk with them; they can be effective, but they're gen they're always used after failure of several other therapies. Other sexual dysfunctions: dyspareunia, dyspareunia which is usually due to atrophic vaginitis. Um, oral or topical estrogens. The actual topical estrogens work much better than the oral estrogens for, for atrophic vaginitis. And then making sure that uh, these folks are using an effective lubricant. Uh, some of the water-based lubricants aren't so good, so things like uh, Astroglide, Slippery Stuff are better lubricants. Decreased libido, that would be a time to think about hypogonadism. So in a, in a man who says that they have erectile dysfunction and Decreased libido, that would be when you think about lower testosterone levels. SSRIs may decrease libido, so certain medication causes. And then delayed orgasm, SSRI, SSRI, SSRI. 30, maybe 50% of people on SSRIs will have delayed orgasm. It's actually an indication for paroxetine is the treatment of premature ejaculation with paroxetine because using the side effect, knowing that up to half of people will experience that, so that's an indication to use the side effect. Okay, so just to kind of finish up with geriatrics here, always order lots of physical therapy in your geriatrics patients on the boards. Stop medications if you can. Don't give NSAIDs. And treat delirium with tender, loving care and not drugs, okay? So you got those things down. You're going to get all your geriatrics questions right. Okay, we're going to finish up, I think, today with some ethics questions. And these are the most memorable things because, you know, you'll remember 20 years later an ethics question because they just, they're weird. You know, on the boards, they, they give you these bizarre scenarios. And the main thing is you just want to yell, 
none of those. You know, I would just get everybody in the room and we'd talk it out. You know, it's like the answer that you kind of like often isn't there. So bear with me on these. Uh, you know, we'll do, try to do the best to get the principles hammered home. So you'll do the best in, a, in, in, in some weird scenarios you'll see. So some of the things we really got to master to answer these questions, and I think to do a good job overall with treating our patients, patients' preferences. Respect for patient autonomy is really, really important. It's the core of so many of these ethics questions you'll probably get. Beneficence, that is, we are thinking to, number one, two, three, act in the best interest and welfare of the patient and society. That comes up in some of these questions. But we care about the patient, what's in their best interest, not in other people's best interest, until society could be injured by, by something. And then we try to do no harm to our patient. That sounds like a good tenet for all of us as physicians. So those are, you're going to see these are the things that come up time and time again in these cases. Now, respect for patient autonomy gets disguised in many ways in board questions. Religious differences. We can't force adults to receive care if contrary to religious preferences. If it's a competent adult, they can choose for themselves what they want to do, and this sometimes comes around things that, uh, that might be a religious difference. Pregnancy. Pregnant women usually cannot be forced to have care for the fetus. That anything that might offer any, any effect on the, on the woman that might be painful or offer risk to the woman cannot be forced, a medical intervention. Paternalism, the practice of overriding or ignoring a patient's preferences in order to enhance welfare generally is ethically unsound. Now, an exception is competency. If somebody is not mentally competent and they were choosing something that doesn't make sense and they, pro they might choose something three days later when they are mentally competent, that's a very different story and that will be woven into some questions. Okay, let's see how you do here. 29-year-old woman presents with hematemesis. She is found to have a crit of 20. She receives IV fluid and is typing cross for transfusion. A repeat hematocrit two hours later is 14. The patient refuses a blood transfusion when it is brought in because of religious convictions. Her husband, who is in the room with her, supports her stance. She has another episode of hematemesis while you wait for the surgeons to arrive. So young person, crit of 20, actively bleeding. She's typing crossed. Crit is dropping, vomiting more blood. She says, I, I don't want blood transfusion. Husband says, this is exactly what I knew she'd say, and I support it. You're waiting for the surgeons to arrive. What do you do? Obtain a court-appointed representative. Give a hospital ethics consult. Give blood because this is a life-threatening emergency. Give blood because of the principle of beneficence. Do not give blood products. So what are you going to do? Yeah, we don't get, as much as this is disturbing and difficult and hard to watch and, and, and upsetting in a lot of ways, the answer is E, we don't get blood products here. This is a case of autonomy for the patient who is competent. Um, we wouldn't get blood products. 21-year-old college student brought to the ED by a roommate for symptoms of headache and fever with stiff neck over the past 18 hours. On exam, she is somnolent but able to be aroused with a temp of 102.2. Blood pressure 100 over 52, pulse of 112. Nuchal rigidity is present. 
The remainder of her exam is unremarkable. White count is 24,000. The patient gives consent for a lumbar puncture. You order a stat dose of IV antibiotics, which the patient overhears. She becomes agitated and refuses the antibiotics. You carefully explain the high risk of death from untreated meningitis. The patient continues to refuse antibiotics and is more agitated. What should you do? Treat with IV fluids only because antibiotics carry a risk and shouldn't be given without patient consent. Treat with antibiotics because the patient has a life-threatening condition. Obtain a court order urgently for treatment. Obtain consent for the patient's roommate and give antibiotics. Okay, good. 81% give the antibiotics, so that's the right answer here. This is a patient who appears to be altered. The patient's agitated. The patient is not making a whole lot of sense. This is a patient who let you do a lumbar puncture and won't give antibiotics. Something is not right here, and they have meningitis. They have inflammation of their brain. You have a good reason that they're altered. IV flu, you know, there, yes, there's a tiny risk of antibiotics. There's an incredible risk of death if you don't give it, and in a patient who's who's probably not competent here, I think treatment is right. Eight isn't correct because the roommate really doesn't have any, any role here to give consent. I mean, you're going to have to make a decision. The roommate, unless they are durable power of attorney, really doesn't have a say here. So you're going to have to make this call on your own. Certainly fine and is good if the roommate's thinking it's a great idea to give antibiotics. Uh, every, it's always nice when everybody in the room's agreeing with you. So... This is an important one in a lot. I think a lot of ethics questions you might be asked on the boards are going to come around patient competency for decision making and how we think through this. If a patient's incapacitated by illness to make a prudent decision, another person can intervene, and that includes you, okay, as a physician. Decision making capacity refers to active comprehending, evaluating, and choosing among realistic options. Now, if you need to go to a surrogate decision maker, Generally, in most states, it's this order. Spouse, then parents, then children, then siblings. Notice friend is non here. Um, now, this is also very important. Choose your spouse carefully, okay? <laughs> That's all I can say. I, I know that you, some of you have had have some probably interesting stories. I mean, I, I, over the years, I've seen someone where, you, where you're going like, this spouse just wants this person dead, you know? And like, it's like, ugh. Anyway, the other one that know about for answering these board questions are durable power of attorney for medical affairs supersedes the family. So if the patient's actually filled out a durable power of attorney for medical affairs and named somebody, they are in charge, okay? So they are in charge for making those medical decisions even though, even though the kids show up and they're like, no, you know, we hate Clarence. He's a bad, you know, they, they, it's like, if it's a signed document, it is what it is. So... That's going to supersede for any of these cases. That's the important thing. 76-year-old man with end-stage COPD, FEV1 of 0.3, presents unconscious. He is found to have a PCO2 of 110. He has stated in several clinic visits his desire not to be intubated. His children who brought him in request everything be done, including intubation. What is the most appropriate care? Do not intubate the patient. Keep him comfortable. Intubate the patient. Obtain a court-appointed representative or obtain an ethics consult. Okay, good. So this person 
gave you his opinion several times, you're certainly hoping that you wrote it down in the clinic notes somewhere, right? I mean, I mean, hope that's now, this is a little bit of nuance about questions, okay? So I would take if they said in a question that he has stated, you know, several times he doesn't want to be intimated, intubated, that, that you can take that as fact. That, that it, they're not trying to get you with, they didn't say that you have a written document that proves that. If he shared that and that's clear, I think for a board question, you have to take that on faith, that's truth. Because, you know, if we, we can overthink these and we can get into the place of, well, if they said that it was a signed clinic or they had it signed, I'd do it. They're trying to get at patient autonomy. This person does not want to be intubated. They've shared it with you and now... The crisis comes, and if he were awake at all, he would be saying, so you already have that information. This is a purely a patient autonomy question. And, you know, intubating him with the idea that we're just going to intubate because, you know, the kids feel differently, you know, the main issue from an ethics question, the right answer is don't intubate him. Now, some people might say, well, I'd intubate him because I don't want to get sued by the kids, and uh, but you will be upheld in every Every, every court of law from a suit standpoint if the patient has made it clear and you have some documentation. This is an ethics question, though. This is not a malpractice question on the boards, okay? So that's where people have sometimes bring it up and go, well, the suit, it's like, I don't even want to go into legal stuff here because the, they're asking you an ethics question here. There is not a question on here about what is going to make your chances of getting sued a little bit less here this is an ethics question, so let's answer it as an ethics question. The answer might be different from the lawsuit side, but, but this is purely an ethics question here, and that's how they're going to score it. Okay, so living wills, sometimes people fill out, this guy might have even had a living will that said, don't intimate, don't intubate me. It allows people to express their wishes for care when they are incapable of expressing preference. It can sometimes help in terminal or irreversible states. The problems with the simple living will is, it's what happens if it's a reversible state. You know, people say, well, I don't want any heroic measure. What is a heroic measure anyway? And what if it's, you know, I had one of these about five years ago where, where a patient had by accident taken too much Valium, right? So they, were, they, had, they had some lung disease and they didn't want to be intubated. They didn't want this and that. And they were fine, except, you know, they got their, they, they ended up taking like 10 doses of, of a benzodiazepine by accident because they were, up to 10, they had, a, they had a supplement they were taking that looked the same, so they took 10 of, and so they stopped breathing, but it's going to wear off in a few hours, right? So, you know, if you go purely by a living will, a heroic method, but it was a reversible state, so that was one where, the, where you know, overriding the, the living will made sense, and I didn't, we didn't intubate her, we bagged her, that was not, that was painful, you know, Try bagging somebody for two hours. And anyway, make a long story short, she woke up and she was very happy that we had let her live because she said, I'm so stupid to take 10 of those. The real question is, why did I have benzodiazepines in the house? That's another story. That's a mistake. So living wills are a little dicey because they are the assumption that it's, a, it's, it's not a reversible state. It's something that's rapidly and simply reversible so there's a little bit of an issue with living wills, but I think we're getting better at the, at the quality of, of our post forms and, and being a little clearer these days. So what's a nice approach for ethical dilemmas to help you in real life, but especially on the boards? 
Clarify the ethical issues in your mind. What are they asking here? Is it a patient autonomy one? Then you're going to be good with that. Is it a competency issue? That's what you're going to focus on. If you can't solve the dilemma, then you can consider an ethics consult, except they're useless in urgent situations. If it's like life or death in the next 15 minutes, you're not getting an ethics consult in less than two days, probably. And generally, doctors hate the courts, so that's, you know, that's true here, too. So we don't go to the courts unless we're really desperate, because in the courts, they're loaded with lawyers. You know, Most of us are not wanting to hang all our time in a court of law. So a court decision is when you have a, a, a stalemate clinical situation that is stable, where you need to have somebody come in from the outside to make a major decision. That would be the scenario where you might think of it. But anything resembling an acute situation, those are just distractors. They're trying to get you to bite on something that doesn't make sense. 86-year-old woman who lives in a nursing home is admitted with severe aspiration pneumonia. She is unconscious with a fever to 104. ABG 722-5266. She has been started in IV antibiotics and fluids. Her nephew, who has durable power of attorney for health care, comes in. The patient has never completed a living will or advanced directives. The nephew meets with you stating that his aunt has become demented over the last few years and the nephew would like IV fluids and antibiotics discontinued with comfort care only. Which of the following statements about the nephew is true? Because the patient has not left specific advanced directives, instructions to discontinue IV fluids and antibiotics should not be carried out. The patient has a son who is next to kin and therefore the nephew can't make medical decisions for her. The nephew's instructions can be carried out only if it is determined that he had discussed the issue with his aunt and is carrying out substituted judgment, or the nephew's request to discontinue IV fluids and antibiotics is within his capacity to act with the patient's durable power of attorney. So which of these is correct? Okay, right, D, this is what a durable power of attorney is for, and it can be very uncomfortable in a situation where, especially if there's, it's not totally clear what their relationship was, how involved he was, um, but, but this is correct. This is somebody who's a very sick person who's got major problems and, and basically said, I trust you to make decisions for me, the right decision for me. So D is totally within his rights and within the rights of a... Of a uh, of somebody who's got durable power of attorney and, and we would be legally and ethically right to follow that. A 66-year-old man who is a patient of yours dies after a protracted illness. It is not clear what the diagnosis was that caused his decline. His spouse wishes to get an autopsy. His daughter, who had durable power of attorney for medical affairs, does not wish to get an autopsy. He has two other children who have not expressed their opinion. Okay? What should you do? Get an autopsy? Do not obtain an autopsy. Hold a meeting with all three children to see if they all agree. Contact the patient's brother for permission for autopsy. Okay, the right, the, the right answer here is A, get an autopsy. And the reason for that is durable power of attorney for medical affairs dies with the patient. So it is not helpful when you are under the 
issue of getting an autopsy. So that goes back to the spouse over the kids, etc. So this is a little this is a little technical thing, but it's important to remember that that anything after the patient has died, that durable power of attorney doesn't exist anymore. Probably the ideal thing, this is one of those ones where you want to, you just want to get everybody in a room and talk through this. You know, like, let's like, okay, why do you, you know, get the kids, get the spouse, everybody in a room and talk through this so everybody's on the same page, everybody's comfortable with the pros and cons of getting an autopsy and the whys behind it. And is this the right thing for the family? But if we purely are going here, the point of this question is, do you know that durable power of attorney for medical affairs ends with death? That's what the the learning objective for that question was. So durable power of attorney authorizes individuals to appoint another person to act as their agent to make all healthcare decisions if they're incapacitated. If they're not incapacitated, they make the decisions, right? So that, you might get a question there where the person's totally fine and the durable power of attorney tries to grab you and say, you know, yeah, I think she shouldn't get any care, you know? And you walk in there and like, no, I want to be treated. I feel fine, you know? Anyway, so you, that could be another trick. So, but uh, it's only if they're incapacitated that person takes, takes over. They carry out the wishes of the patient, or if such wishes are unknown, they try to think what's in the best interest for them, and it dies with the patient. An 80-year-old Cambodian woman is brought to the emergency department with abdominal pain and nausea. CT scan is done that shows multiple lesions in the liver and a large pancreatic mass. Her children ask that you do not tell her what the diagnosis is, as in their culture it isn't appropriate to tell the patient they have terminal cancer and that they are dying. So kids say, you know, we understand what's going on, but would you please, you know, let us take care of this and not tell, you know, not tell you know, our parents what, what's going on here. Okay, so that's the information the family shares with you. What do you do? Ask the patient if she would like to designate a family member to help make decisions about her care. Tell the patient that she has cancer and that it is serious. Tell the patient that she has cancer that is, and that it is terminal. Yeah, I think A is, is the right answer here. And it's the, it's the idea that one of the important things is we have different ways of doing things in, the, you know, in our main medical centers and what we use for, most, for many patient groups. And you know, in the United States, it, you know, we tend to be, we're going to be all about the truth and we're just going to share right with the patient. It's the patient and I. And that's not true in every culture. And part of the right thing to do is to be sensitive to different cultures and you know this has gotten a lot of attention in the last 10 years, and I would not be surprised if something like this came on the boards where the idea is we don't have a one-size-fits-all. And even though sharing, being honest and sharing everything with the patient is sort of a big ideal and something that gets pushed really hard, when, a, you know, when, when you're starting to learn about another culture and the family comes to you and says, we're concerned about this, I think the right answer definitely is A here. So I, it was hard for me to write a question to f- try to bring this in, but just be ready for that about cultural differences and that being cautious about absolute, applying one set of standards everywhere, looking at each thing by a case-by-case basis like this. So, you know, there definitely are cultural differences, uh, in, especially in um, some cultures in Southeast Asia, there's a strong desire to protect elders from hearing a terminal diagnosis and uh, an especially important uh, not dying in the hospital, being very, very sensitive to that.
50-year-old man returns to follow-up CT for staging of a recently diagnosed lung cancer. The CT scan shows multiple enlarged nodes in the mediastinum and numerous liver lesions consistent with METs. He does not want his family to know. The patient requests you do not tell his wife or children. So he's, this guy's got really advanced cancer, and you're, you know, you're giving him feedback on that. And he says, you know, I understand that, but don't tell anybody in my family that I have this disease. What should you do? Tell the patient you want to meet with the family and the patient to discuss the diagnosis. Tell the patient he must tell his spouse. Tell the patient you will inform the spouse. Tell the patient you understand his feelings and that you will be available to talk to the family if he wants you to. Yeah, you did great on this one. This is, this is a patient autonomy. It's his right, even though we may not think it's the best way to handle things, especially for the angst the family's going to go through. Um, just suddenly this guy declining. And, you know, and then you know, part of it that people might think is, well, what if, what if knowing about this would help them with their own health and all those issues? That's a projection way down the road. And this, really, this question is a pure patient autonomy, and you did a great job with that. I think we'll stop there and we'll have a whole bunch of other general medicine things to cover tomorrow. You guys did great. Thanks so much for your attention.